Who am I? The MC. Lottie Dot. I don't wear socks. I wear DJs out quickly at the park. Who am I? If you like me, hip hop. All right. <laughs> Who am I? The Welcome MC. to the show, guys. When the jam is slow and you need a proceeder. Who am I? The MC. When you need a lyrical leader with oratorical triple features. Who am I? The MC. When you need to rock your 3,000 seat arena. All right, all right, all right. Who am I? The MC. I'm Scott Horton. This is the Q&A show. Um, normally I do the interview show. You can find us at scotthorton.org slash interviews. This is uh, the Q&A show feed. But what it is is I can't stand to just do a podcast where I record myself talking. So instead, occasionally, I get my friend Eric to sit here and listen to me rant and rave. Uh, the great Eric Schuler, Formerly a writer for us at the Libertarian Institute before he got burned out and sick of writing, I guess. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, good to talk to you again this evening. How you doing, Eric? Doing well, Scott. Good to talk to you. I'll, I'll write again once work comes down. You know how it is. Yeah, good. Gotta pay the bills. Um, I'd like that. You're a talented writer. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, good times. So, uh, we got questions. And you know what? I apologize to the Reddit group guys. By the time they hear this, they're going to be mad because I didn't give them a chance to line up all their questions in the Reddit group. But we already got so many things to cover anyway. As we got is. a lot of topics. So, we'll just have to do another one sooner. Instead of like once yeah. every six weeks or eight weeks like this. We'll, do, we'll catch up a little sooner for the next one. Definitely. But anyways, Definitely. so lots of things. Uh, questions. What are they? Yeah. Well, I thought we'd start off with uh, Venezuela. So I guess let's get a little primer to the audience on how things are going there. How's the uh, the coup progressing for anybody who's not? I'm sure everybody's familiar with the story by this time, but you want to just give a little little bit of background on it? Yeah. So um, Hugo Chavez came to power in 99. He was the leftist uh, former paratrooper. Uh, he was elected freely and fairly over and over again. And a big part of that was because George Bush's war in Iraq helped to drive up oil prices. So during his entire reign, oil was selling at so high, the revenues are just pouring in. And so he's really able to um, expand the welfare state from just the richest, whitest people, a.k.a. the fascist state or a, a very conservative right-wing type state, uh, to one where the socialism was... For the poor Indians, too, essentially, to oversimplify it a bit. Um, and that worked until oil prices crashed. And then, of course, Chavez died of stomach cancer and was replaced by this guy, Maduro, who, you know, he certainly doesn't have, you know, the credibility or the, um, I think, the, the kind of built-up respect that Chavez commanded from people. Um, he's he's very much the George Bush to Chavez, this Ronald Reagan kind of a character. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, he was. Was he Maduro or was Maduro Chavez's successor? Or yes. Was that, no, was I don't know exactly. Was, I, I don't know if he was what vice president and then became president or exactly what his role was. But yeah, I think he was the anointed successor to the chosen okay. successor to Chavez. But so, you know, essentially socialism doesn't work. So what happens was they way over promised of what they could afford to give everyone. And then when the oil prices crashed, they weren't really able to, um, you know, to keep up with all those promises. So they ran up their debts. And then when no one would loan them any more money, they started printing money and destroyed their currency. And then, of course, 
as inflationists do, they put on price controls, which cause the massive shortages. You know, hyperinflation is really disruptive anyway. But then you put on price controls, and you're essentially just outlawing trade until somebody finally lifts the damn price controls at that point. So I and, – and I'm not exactly sure the status of that. I think the worst of that may have passed, but it still was really disastrous. And some say, you know, some million percent inflation. I don't know if that's really yeah. right or not. I mean, I think once you're at thousands and thousands of percent inflation, it's kind of all academic yeah. at that point. It's just how many zeros are we cutting off this week or this month or whatever, you know? Yeah. Anyway, when you've switched to yeah, when you switch to weighing weighing bills instead of counting them, yeah. you know you've got a problem. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to put it. You know, rounding off to the nearest pound of paper dollars. Um. Uh, but so, um, now, so the Americans, though, they run the evil empire. And so, you know, they have their own interest here, which is essentially, as John Bolton almost perfectly phrased it, we want the oil and the money, too. And that's it. Uh, he claimed on Fox News that, oh, yeah, this would be incredibly beneficial for the American economy if we if american oil companies got to invest in and develop that oil and reap the profits from that oil well i mean that is an obvious lie just on the face of it like what's the maximum amount of cash profit that could be made by exxon or whoever the coke industries or whoever off of venezuelan oil in a year like low tens of billions at the absolute maximum right so right. who cares about that? What does that have to do with anything? Like like Texas is going to go out of business without a few tens of billions. That's a remainder on nothing. That's nothing. And so it's just a ridiculous lie that, you know, that they want people to believe that our way of life is dependent on gangsterizing the rest of the people of the world out of their resources like this. Now, it's true if you're an executive vice president for Coke Industries or for Exxon, but it's not true if you're you at your job or me at mine. Right. Well, and, and, and so I guess Bolton's point on that is sort of conflating any American company's success or profit with like the national good, which is kind mm -hmm. of a mercantilist sort of idea on that, um, which, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really need to be said, but obviously the rest of the American people don't really benefit from that unless you're working there. Or, I mean, even if you made the tax argument, what are they going to contribute? Like, and even then, that's just the government's going to use that money to do bad things. So, um it's turtles all the way down. Uh, do you think Bolton actually believes that story? I mean, do you think to oh, him well, I mean, he I really think, thinks? Yeah, he's, he wants he's to happy to carry bags for Exxon. Or whether he thinks that's good for America overall, for yeah. for average Americans. I think, as you just put it, essentially, he's happy to conflate these things. It's not like he's sitting there thinking too hard about it and saying, well, you know, really, I'm BSing, you know, or whatever. Right. I mean, maybe he is. But it's very convenient for him to believe that anything that he does as a political apparatchik amounts to benefiting the greater good of American glory and health and longevity right. and whatever, in whatever fancy way he wants to imagine it, you know. I'm sure he, he definitely along Yeah, he gives off the vibe of that, of the true believer. Which oh, are absolutely. Self-righteousness <laughs> to the nth degree with John Bolton, for sure. Uh, yeah. And, you know, a big part of this, too, is... Well, you know what? Here's a quote that was on the oil for a second. Mm -hmm. This is, I guess, the one thing that I think, if I read this right, that it was an Andrew McCabe quote. That would be one thing that he said that I believe, 
which is that he heard Trump say that, oh, yeah, Venezuela. See, they got all that oil, and they're right close to us. That's who we need to invade. That's the oil we need to take right there kind of thing, which I just completely believe Trump saying that. I mean, people think of Trump as all different things. To me, he's the best category to put him in is a 70-something-year-old Fox News-watching golfer who that's about all he knows, right? He doesn't know anything about anything except what he sees on TV and all that. So that's exactly the kind of thing that I would expect to hear from, like, some old guy living out in Sun City. <laughs> and I, I remember reading that quote, too, and thinking it was great because they even used it, the language, I think, uh, one part of it, they're like, yeah, they're right on our back door, which you could just totally see somebody think like, yeah, you know, just go out the back and take a country. It'll be great. Yeah, exactly. It'll be awesome, guys. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we talked about, you know, obviously the, and unfortunately for Maduro, not that we should have any sympathy for the guy, but the drop in oil prices coincided very closely with him taking power. So that's, I mean, that's a yeah. tough draw. And by the way, you um, know, so I interviewed Tom Edlam about this and said that, you know, he outright has stolen the last couple of elections there. Now, I think that there's room to quibble because the opposition, at America's behest and encouragement, boycotted those elections. So, certainly if you were on Maduro's side, you'd say, yeah, of course you boycott it because you would have lost anyway. Now, their <laughs> argument is, no, we boycott it because he was going to steal it anyway. And we didn't want to dignify it by pretending that it was legit and on the up and up. So... You can see right there. That ought to be enough for you to say, ah, I'm out of this. This is not Eric Schuler's business to solve for the people of Venezuela. How could it be with, you know, their varying points of view on all this? Then you have, you know, the Wall Street Journal version and everything, of course, is that the official story is that Vice President Pence told this guy Guaido, the head of the National Assembly, to declare himself the president. And then they're going straight on the kind of technicality I mean, you know what? And it's Trump's government doing this. And what they're doing is they're invoking the Venezuelan 25th Amendment. And they're pretending it says that you can just do a coup if you want. And the language in there is it's essentially and it's not the 25th Amendment in Venezuela, whatever it is in Venezuela. But it's the part that says, essentially, if the president is unavailable, if, if, if he's, you know, the office is vacant and something someone must take charge, it will be the head of the National Assembly. Right. Instead of, you know, the foreign minister or whatever. Um, so they're saying, well, he stole the election. Therefore, he's not really the president. Therefore, the office is vacant. Therefore, he's unavailable. And so therefore, now I'm the president because Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, says that I should do that. Now, you might say that actually I'm Venezuelan and I buy that. He did steal the election. He's not really the president. The office was vacant. And I say I accept that. But still, you would have to be a Venezuelan to be able to choose whether you accept that or not. That's not for an American or for anyone else, a USAEN, or anyone else to say about them or how they should choose. Um, and then one of the right-wing justifications that I read saying that, hey, the guy's unavailable, so it's perfectly fine, also said that, you know, it does say that when the National Assembly leader declares himself president and all that, that he must hold an election as fast as reasonably possible to do. And they go, yeah, but we read a lot of wiggle room into the word reasonably there. And we're pretty sure that he could just stay for quite a while and hold an election, you know, maybe after the next term. So, And these are the Americans, the American conservative Trump 
party, the Republicans essentially, saying, I think I read that one was at the Federalist, something like that. And, and, yeah. and so this is the theory is that we're going to interpret their constitution in a way that favors American, you know, imperial and corporate interests. And, and then, but wait, one more thing. It didn't work, yeah. right? The military and the Venezuelan government did not switch sides to the head of the National Assembly. And I'm not saying it should be up to them, but I'm just saying descriptively speaking, when you're doing a right-wing putsch, you better make sure that you have the generals on board or else it's yeah. not really one. And so That's what like do they have? Is, yeah, they have yeah. a failed, fizzled coup, essentially, right? I'm right. sorry, I missed your joke. No, oh, I was just saying, yeah, that getting the military on board for your coup is step one of every <laughs> yeah. of every coup. Yeah, you that's gotta, the whole thing. I can't believe they skipped that one. Yeah, I know. Um, so let's back up a little bit on that. So you talked about Guaido there. So you're referring to Juan Guaido, who I guess in our context we'd call him, he'd be the equivalent of Nancy Pelosi, sort of. Although, didn't you have, I'm not sure if it was Blumenthal or Edlum or who it was on your podcast, um, who said that, Guaido's not really, he's maybe, he's not even on that level of prominence in terms of before this announcement, no one would have known. He was like the representative from Delaware, some random district that nobody cares about. And then he came on. Can you talk a little more about that and like where he comes from or? Well, I don't know exactly. Yeah, I don't know exactly um, how prominent he really was. But essentially the way that they pick the their speaker of the house, essentially the, their leader of that National Assembly, is by lot. And so it was his party's turn, and he was the next guy in line in his party. And so it was one of these kind of, it's like a rotating office, and it was just okay. his turn. So he was elected to his congressional seat, essentially. But he was mm-hmm. never elected in some big ceremony to the speakership, never had the prominence of a Nancy Pelosi, like you're saying, as a House okay. Speaker, something like that. Um and, you know, the Wall Street Journal had this piece about how, you know, completely fractured the opposition is and how even when, when Vice President Pence told him to do this and then he did it the next day, that a bunch of his friends got up and walked off the stage because they hadn't been informed. There were only four people who knew of the plan to do it. And then he did it. And even some of his allies were like, oh, man, I can't believe you would surprise me with this. And so... But now they're working up this whole hoax about, oh, we're trying to bring in humanitarian aid, and they're not allowing it because they're starving their own people and trying to come up with a casus belli like that. But I don't think Trump really wants to have a war there. You know, it's just like, you know, the Bay of Pigs kind of thing. When they promise the president, don't worry, it's going to work. We're going to threaten them and scare them, and they're going to do what we say. We're going to bomb Serbia for a weekend, and Milosevic will give up Kosovo. We're going to, you know, whatever. We're going to flex our muscles and they're just going to run in terror but it never works like that in real life and so now you're at the point where you go okay well we tried to do a coup but it didn't take so now we have this pretext that well we're going to try to send this humanitarian aid and demonize the guy for rejecting it even though adam johnson had a great thing at fair about how this whole thing's a hoax and the red cross told them not to do it this way and whatever the real aid organizations have their own thing going what have you. Okay. So it's a, because it's like, a, it's a, they're trying to drum up a cost of spelly, but for what? I mean, it can't be that Trump told Bolton that, yeah, if it comes to war, go ahead and send in the Marines. I mean, I just can't believe that, but I mean, maybe, but well, I don't think, I, I don't think anything short of that's going to work. So the question really then is, can the Trump administration concede defeat and just give it up? I mean, Bush failed at his coup against Chavez but then he went ahead and attacked Iraq, so nobody was paying attention to his, 
you know, foolish embarrassment in Venezuela. It didn't matter. But how is this going to not matter if he fails to carry this through, you know? Right. Well, I guess, like, let's let's talk through that a little bit, because it's true that, you know, a lot of our attempted coups, you know, elsewhere have gone pretty poorly, especially recently. But in Latin America, that's not quite as true, right? Because America has been able to do more kind of successful coups there. And, I mean, because he could be thinking about the example of George H.W. Bush in Panama, where... You know, they were able to use the military, invade, and that was one of those quick and fast operations where they really did leave quickly. And I don't know. I mean, isn't Bolton, he's kind of from that era, right? And so he could be thinking on that model of like, oh, we'll just do a Noriega, right? Yeah. Except here's the thing about that is that um, in Panama, the Americans had a military base there full of Marines and Army guys. And so all they had to do really was leave their base and take over a country that they already completely pwned the hell out of in every way. So Venezuela is not that way at all, you know. Plus, it's all very mountainous and much larger, and it has a population that has not been under American dominance. And, you know, there was a time, I don't know a lot about this, but I've been told that Chavez was passing out AKs to anybody who wanted one on his side of the thing. So if it ever came down to any kind of actual Marines on the beaches or whatever, we're going to have to really fight. They'd be crazy to do that. I don't think the Pentagon wants to do that. I mean, I guess they'll do it if they're told to, but they must be telling Trump that we're not going that far. So I really don't know what's going to happen, you know? And do you think, I mean, so they are still campaigning, you know, the Guaido side. I heard that they're, you know, kind of trying to march to the border to invite the aid shipment in or whatever. I mean, obviously, like you're saying, they are trying to create a pretext. But, um, I mean, do you think it's it's safe to say that, you know, really, if the military was going to defect, it would have happened by now? Yes. And yes. This, yeah. yeah. I don't know what they We're think they're going to do. Stage. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I I would really like hope they could just try to ignore it and make it go mm-hmm. away the way Bush did with his failed coup in 02. Like, well, sometimes you try to overthrow the government of Venezuela and it doesn't take. Save it for the next guy. Move on. So what about the other kind of forms of pressure that they've been exerting on Venezuela? So I'm thinking of here, you know, so Venezuela has assets or Venezuelan's government has assets with the U.S. Federal Reserve, I think, and with the Bank of England. They had some gold stored there. Um, And my understanding, and I'm not sure if this has changed since they kind of lost some steam, but that the Bank of England decided that they're going to give the gold to the opposition instead of to the Maduro government. Well, I think it was um, I think it was they're just going to hold on to it and not let okay. not let Maduro have it. But then on the oil, the Americans were saying all the money's going to go to Guaido now. And I guess okay. most of what they're selling is still to the US at this point. And so, they're going to try to keep all that Sitco money now. And you know, this actually is something that I skipped before was all the sanctions against them. And they're, um, you know, removing them from SWIFT and all this kind of thing. I'm not sure if they're banned from the Bank for International Settlements or not. Or Is that even a thing? I think that's still a yeah. thing. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but they waged a real economic war against them. So, as Greg Pallast put it, it was like, this guy's got horrible economic policy. And Pallast is a progressive, but he's not a dummy. So he's going, mm-hmm. look, you're going to destroy the hyperinflate the currency, and then put on price controls and all this. He sounds like any right-winger or libertarian explaining why that's not right, you know. But then he says, look, if you 
wage the same kind of economic war starting tomorrow against Canada, where they have not been destroying their currency, but you just kick them out of SWIFT, kick them out of the international you know, banking system and you know, the legitimacy of all of their international transactions come under sanctions and under question and all of that, you will see the Canadian dollar lose value immediately. You know, and not because of expansion of the monetary base, but just because of the subjective theory of value and people betting that it's going to be worth less in the future and and seeing it as worth less at that point. So I even asked Bob Murphy, I called Bob Murphy and said, Hey, at what point was the hyperinflation more Trump's fault than Maduro's or not or what? Or at which point did the sanctions kick in and make the difference? And did they make the difference for the worse? Or what is the truth of that? And he said he'd look into it, but I ain't heard from him. So maybe I'll try to get back with Bob Murphy about that soon. Find out what if, you know, because I think he was really going to look into it. But, you know, I asked David Stockman and he said he didn't know. But David Stockman did quote a guy who said he did know and said that the worst of the hyperinflation came from after the sanctions. So I think that's so, an important point, too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that it's Because it's easy, simply... you know, it's, it's such a case of confirmation bias with this stuff, right? Because you have the partisanship in terms of do you support Trump and do you support the president, and here he's attacking a left-wing enemy. But even if it was Obama in power, it's still a left-wing rogue state out there that they're demonizing. And quite frankly... They overpromised their welfare system, their socialist system, in a way that they couldn't keep up with. And they destroyed their currency. And it is just like a right-winger would tell you. But so the first thing a right-winger says to himself is, aha, I told you so. But then that's all they can hear is the confirmation bias telling them that that's what all is going on here. When, in fact, you know, they're leaving out the other half of the equation in the American empire. And of course the, the leftists see the liberals are just as bad as the right wingers on the, on the Venezuela, on the intervention there almost even, you know, I saw Donna Shalala attacking Bernie Sanders today for refusing to condemn Maduro as a dictator and demanding that he, that, and demand that he leave. Um, that's a former uh, Bill Clinton era Democrat operative. Um, but, um, the, uh, the leftists by and large, dismiss all this criticism of socialism and say, no, it's all America's fault. America is, you know, the evil empire of the North and they're coming down and they have the ability to, you know, wreck this kind of havoc on Venezuela's economy. And I'm just saying, guys, everybody's right here. You know, it's not that you're both wrong. It's that you're both right. That, you know, the yeah. leftists don't know how to run an economy. You know, I read this thing, man. Um, I can't remember which thing it was, but it wasn't some like ridiculously biased right wing thing either. It was like a pretty credible take on this. I think it was even like a sympathetic sort of liberal or leftist take that just said, you know, essentially to paraphrase it, it would be like if you heard of the resource curse and then you did everything you could to implement that as policy. So here they took a country that already had a lot of oil and always was dependent on their oil revenue and everything, but they also had a pretty diversified economy in a lot of other ways. They had a lot of farming and a lot of ranching and a lot of whatever textiles, and I'm making up stuff now, I don't know. They had a diversified enough economy. But then comes Chavez and the oil socialism, and now, just like in a right-wing caricature, everybody's paid to not work. Everybody's paid to stop producing, and they ended up outsourcing their entire economy. 
You think Yemen's bad. In Venezuela, they import 95% of their food. And that's before the hyperinflation kicked in. They yeah, just, and they don't even live in a desert. So. Yeah, seriously. They, they acted like, you know what? Well, we never have to work again. And, you know, I read this thing that was translated. It was a Russian uh, journalist um, who was down there, and it was translated into English. And, um, well, one of the things he was talking about was how there's food on the shelves. So I guess the worst of the price controls were lifted or something, because there's food on the shelves in the grocery store. He said there's huge rallies on this side of town and on that side of town, pro-government and anti-government. But the rest of the city is totally calm and fine and going about their business. So don't act like the whole place is on the verge of a revolution because they're not. They're just not. You know, there are protests all over the damn place. That doesn't threaten the stability of the state necessarily anywhere, you know. Um, But then he also says everybody gets a free tank of gas a day. Every day. Like if you're not driving a whole tank of gas worth, then you're like losing money, dude. And whatever. Yeah. And then if you're poor enough and you qualify the right thing, whatever, you could get a free house. They just straight up give you a house. And they're technically owned by the government, but not really. They just give it to you. And if you're in the right neighborhood or, you know, from the right sect, uh, the right group of Indians or the right, you know, area of town or whatever, you just get the hook up. This is the ultimate patronage, and it's poor people first, meaning the masses first in line compared to the way it used to be. And so one, on one hand, that doesn't work, right? Uh, but on the other hand, try telling those people that this isn't working and we're taking away all your stuff now. And the Americans have decided the great white father is going to come down and give us a new leader who's going to take all our stuff away and promise that we're going to get richer as a result in the end anyway. So it's fine. I mean, give me a break, right? Who's going to believe that? That's not the the easiest narrative to sell. So now I got got a question for you on this because um, maybe it's not an obvious uh, position for a libertarian to take, but, you, you know... With the U.S. holding some of Sitco's assets and the Bank of England holding some of the government's assets, um, which I guess are sort of the same thing, but um, I mean, you could see if you if you did think that the country was on the brink of a civil war, um, would the libertarian position be to say, you know, and I'm well, I'm asking you to speak for the whole libertarian movement, but I, I trust your judgment on this. Would it be to say, you know what? We shouldn't. We should just hold all this money because we don't want either side to have it because they're just going to use it to kill each other. Or you know what? No, we made a commitment to hold their assets for whatever reason, and maybe that was a terrible idea. But that's their property. You know, it's sort of property rights. We yeah. have property rights. This is something public. that came up in that in that uh, Thomas Edlam interview, where Thomas Edlam is essentially saying that he buys Guaido's interpretation of the Constitution, and so mm-hmm. if the Trump government does then isn't it only right for him to withhold the money from the previous government and give it to the new government? And my position on that is that is not settled inside Venezuela at all. There comes a point where there's really no question who the president is. And either or there's a civil war that breaks out over who the president is or what. But until it's completely settled, there should not be a change. The status quo should be the rule until it's clear that the Madero government is over uh, and this guy is in now, and then it wouldn't even be a change, right? We'd be signing the checks over to the same bank. Um, but I guess in the interim where it is, I mean, 
contested however seriously or not. I mean, in the U.S., you have a bunch of people saying hashtag not my president, too, which obviously that's at a lower a lower level than the Venezuelan one is, but or seems to be. But I mean, is the should the U.S. just not let anybody have the money until it's settled or what do you I mean, no, they should come down on that. No, they should keep with the previous arrangement and make no judgment on the internal affairs. They should they should essentially be oblivious to the eternal internal affairs of Venezuela, right? The the money goes in in the hypothetical here. Money is to be transferred to Venezuelan companies or to Venezuelan you know state-owned departments or to the Venezuelan central bank or whatever is the rule from three weeks ago should be the rule now. And if there's a revolution, the entire government is completely destroyed and replaced with an entire new government. Then you make a deal with that entire new government. But otherwise, you know, I, I think the U.S. government really it should not know any of our names. We should be none of its business. The general government of the U.S. shouldn't even be concerned with who is inside the country at all. That's all local and state matters. Their their issues are kind of larger. I think the same sort of thing with the internal affairs of other countries. It just has nothing to do with them. And clearly, if they start withholding the money now or they give it to Guaido instead or whatever, and that puts them in the driver's seat. They're the ones... Uh, you know, taking control. And in fact, if you favor getting rid of Maduro, then favoring American action to get rid of Maduro is probably the worst thing you could do. If you really want to undermine the opposition over there and support Maduro, then you should encourage the CIA to keep smacking their brand all over everything this guy Guaido does. And this guy Guaido has even said repeatedly now that he does not rule out calling for American military intervention in his country to put him in charge. Now, I don't care where you're from. That's treason. I mean, if you're from Pango Pango, then you would hang that guy from a tree for that. Wherever you're from, I mean, how in the world could anyone think that this is going to be now the guy that we're going to put in power there? The guy who already said he's willing to invite the U.S. to murder his countrymen that refuse to go along with his power grab. I mean, that's completely crazy. And again, all of the things being equal and assuming the prerogatives of the empire. You want a friendly government in there? A little bit lighter touch would probably do better. You know? Yeah. And, yeah, and, it, it always says a and, and Maduro's poll numbers are up by like twenty points. So there you go. And and to critics that would say, but if the U- U.S. behaves business as usual, usual and continues to let Venezuela access the money that it had or the assets it had in the U.S. or the gold it stored with the Fed or whatever, they would say, well, now you're taking Maduro's side. But you'd say, no, it's business as usual. You you can't withholding the money would be taking the other side. So you have to just keep the status quo until it's obvious that it's different. And look, I mean, the libertarian answer is that the U.S. government shouldn't exist at all. So anything that our government is doing to prevent us from trading with the Venezuelans the way we feel like is American communism. So how does that make the Americans any better than the Venezuelans? You know, that was what Harry Brown would say about, you know, the Soviet Union and how in fact, I remember listening to Harry Brown talk about kind of the, the John Birch take on the Soviet Union was that detente was treason. That here the Soviet Union was on its last legs, and here Nixon and Kissinger are shipping them a bunch of grain and shipping them a bunch of money, and David Rockefeller's at the chase making them loans and has helped propping up their government. And Harry Brown is saying, Psh, 
the government of Russia ain't none of our business anyway. It doesn't matter if we're propping them up or not. Who cares about that? Do they want to buy wheat, sell them wheat? Otherwise, you're asking the U.S. government to act as communists, to intervene and prevent this trade between people who want to trade. And if the Soviet Union is going to fall sooner or later, that's up to them. That's not our purview. And so, you know, um, you could look at it like, oh, no, we got this strategy. We're going to starve them out. But does that make us any better than the Soviets when that's our goal is to starve the people into giving up their communism? That was what we hated about communism, right, with all the starvation? So, you know... A yeah. little bit of, a, you know, practice what you preach kind of self-awareness sort of thing would go a long way here. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and then I guess the last thing, I mean, but Scott, and it's kind of to the exact thing you're saying, they're socialist, and you're a libertarian. Shouldn't you want an intervention? Because any government that replaces that has to be better than that one. I mean, how, how libertarian could you be if you're supporting keeping a socialist in power, Scott? I can't believe you. I, well, you know, I mean, I really time. don't think of libertarianism as a right-wing philosophy. I mean, to me, libertarianism is the exact opposite of socialism and the exact opposite of fascism, and that those two things really have a lot more in common. Now, I'm not one of these types who says, oh, Nazism is a left-wing phenomenon, because that just completely destroys the meaning of left and right at all. Of course, it's not. It's an elitist reaction to communism, but it's just as collectivist, and it's just as or more totalitarian and and horrible and against the very you know nature of humanity and so a worse government than maduro on the right is easy to imagine a worse government than maduro on the left is easy to imagine too you know he's horrible in a thousand ways but he ain't joe stalin Joe Stalin really existed that's the thing mao Zedong starved 40 million people to death so things could get a lot worse than him on the left, and things could get a lot worse than him on the right wing, too. You could have some, you know, some general declare himself the, uh, you know, Fatah el-Sisi dictator over there and start massacring people in the streets. You know, things could get really out of hand, and, and right wing, you know, socialism is really bad economics. Fascism is, too. And fascism is really just communism, but for the chosen few at the expense of everyone else. An exclusive communism, rather than one where you must assimilate, like the Borg, an, an inclusive communism, where you have no choice but to be included. Um, but it's, otherwise, it's the same damn thing, you know? Um, and that's how it was in Venezuela before, and I don't know the entire history of this, um, there have been American-backed right-wing dictators there before who killed people and stole money and had to flee. And, you know, this was the, the predecessors to Chavez weren't libertarians. They were right-wingers. And, you know, that ain't liberty and that ain't libertarianism. So that's my answer to that, pretty simply. Well, and also, yeah. the first thing here is the USA is the world empire. And even if we weren't, even if the USA was broken in 10 and we were only talking about what Texas should do in this situation, the answer is nothing. It's none of our damn business. You know, the nature of the nation state, such as it is, is that as long as we got them, and this is pure Rothbard here, as long as we have them, we want to limit their activity in every way. Call it, in a Marxist sense, 
we want to see the state wither away. Only unlike Marxists, we don't think a totalitarian dictatorship is the pathway to <laughs> an anarchist uh, uh, state of freedom. Uh, we're Rothbardians instead and, and look at it the other way. But so, I mean, that's what Rothbard says. We do believe in natural human rights, individual human rights, that, but we believe that in, in universal rights locally enforced. Because what can I really do for you, man, over there where you are in a way where I'm not empowering myself to intervene in your affairs so much that it's already a denial of liberty in the first place? How am I even supposed to raise a militia to go free you without leveling taxes on my local people? Uh, you know what I mean? So, it, you know, to even have the force to liberate someone beyond whatever distance is necessarily anti-libertarian and so should be rejected and that's the whole thing about why we should why why it's such a tragedy really about why our government exploits the language of freedom while they wage all of these horrible wars because right. the real deal is if you can just imagine the post-Cold War era where all the generals were fired, the Pentagon was turned into a library like they said it was going to be in the first place, and we just were a normal country in a normal time. We hadn't have been at war all of this time. Then um, I completely fucking lost my train of thought. Uh, uh, I'm not sure where you're going with that part. But what I was the only thing I was going to add to that is, yeah, obviously I agree with all that, and also – no matter what the government was to emerge on the out of it, there's really nothing worse than being in a state of war. And that's what it would take. You're not going to see a peaceful transition of power because that basically never happens in these sorts of situations. Right. You have some sort of civil war and, you know, you think the economy is bad under socialism. The economy under war is when, when you're in the country where the war is happening, it really it doesn't get any worse than that. Yeah, exactly. Because all your transportation. And all I was going to say was, down. yeah, and all I was going to say was, you know, and so that's why all we could do is be the best example in an alternative universe where we were our best example of how well liberty works. We could show that to people that this is what it means to have sound money, to have a real bill of rights, to have regular elections, you know, that are not corrupt, where people have a chance to really have their say and and whatever, et cetera. These very basic, uh, you know, post enlightenment Western principles kind of thing that that would be the best way to even help people in foreign countries secure their own liberty would be to give right. them a solid Rothbardian foundation that they can rely on, that they have the Americans to point to that shows that it works instead of, oh, well, the Americans talk a good game about freedom all the time while they set us all on fire and steal all our money and oil and whatever and obviously hate our guts and hate our God and hate everything and, you know, whatever horrible reality the American empire brings. So right. that's the whole thing about it, too. It's just like, man, I'll never forget in 2011 interviewing Juan Cole. And Juan Cole is like, yeah, we got to go get Gaddafi. And I'm going, yeah, but man, what about all that stuff that happened? What about all the lessons that we learned? What about the violence of the American military? And the chaos that they have just, they're not even done rotting in Iraq right now this year, dude. But to him, who, and boy, he knew the ins and outs of every, every step of every week and every month of the developments of Iraq War II. He knew everything about it. And yet, 
was willing to say, yeah, we're going to bring liberty to the people of Libya with this same corrupt, violent force, just because Barack Obama was the one driving the golf cart instead of George Bush, you know. It is it is funny how even people that are otherwise very intellectual, that the change of the party can change all of your views on things. And I don't even know, because I just quit reading drug, as you say. I just froze that long coal out, so I don't even know how bad he was on Syria, but I can imagine. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure either. But actually, that's uh, probably a good point to transition to. Um, but yeah, let's go to Syria next. So we, there hasn't been a lot of news, uh, or I haven't seen a lot of news about Syria in the last couple weeks. Do you, from your understanding, is the you know is the withdrawal still on? Yes. How, how much protestation is is going on there? Yeah. So within the Pentagon, I mean. Well, I don't know about in the Pentagon. I mean, I think the neocons. And probably in the White House, some of the neocons like John Bolton is – well, he's not really a neocon, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Some of the hawks are pushing to keep the Al-Tanf base, which is a base right at the border of Jordan, Syria, and Iraq, right there in far southeastern Syria. And this is a base where they want to stay there so that they can keep Iran from forming this land bridge from Tehran through Baghdad because Saddam ain't there. Now, through Syria, where Iran has an expanded presence since they came to help Assad fight back the American-backed jihadists, um, and then on to Beirut. And this was part of the excuse for the war against Assad and support for those terrorists in the first place. And so now they're saying, ah, geez, we can't just leave after having empowered Iran in Syria, the exact opposite of our goal. And so now we have to further stay. But I'm not so sure they're getting away with that. And the best I know is from Mark Perry had a piece in the American Conservative. Well, first of all, Gareth Porter had one where he was reading the tea leaves and he was saying he was noting the language of Mike Pompeo saying, that's right. We're keeping all our goals in eastern Syria and we will keep all of those goals as we withdraw, you know, not we will accomplish them and then withdraw. But just, you know, in other words, the whole first part of that sentence was just face saving that, yeah, we're leaving, really. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it that way. But then. So um, actually, yeah, before go we go to the next thing. um about the Al-Tanf base, I mean, the border with Lebanon isn't that narrow, right, between oh, yeah. Syria and... other side. No, no, no. Iraq, Jordan, and Syria in the far southeast of Syria. Lebanon's in the far west on the Mediterranean oh, thinking... coast. But I guess, like, the land bridge that they're worried about, the road, uh -huh. other, in other words, um, to the rest of us, it's Syria, and, or it's Iran, Iraq, Syria, and then Lebanon, right? But how does having that base, how would that even theoretically help, I guess, that's is my question. I, I guess there's, they it ought does. to be able to shoot trucks with artillery as they cross. Okay. <laughs> but, like, I mean, you might ask, well, why not stake them out somewhere in Iraq? Well, the guys we put in power in Iraq don't want that. So, um, right. they're, okay. they're trespassing in Syria, so the status quo is they're still there. Right. right. Whereas... They'd have to, and, and I guess, you know, they're in Iraq, but they're invited on a very specific mission, working with the Shiite Iraqi army, fighting Iraq War three and a half against the last Islamic State insurgents in Iraq. So that's a different mission. They can't stop and start bombing Iranians in the middle of that when they've got Iranian-backed militia guys and Shiite officers in the military at their side. So they'll have to leave that to the Americans on the Syrian side of the border, where Iran aren't the good guys, they're the bad guys still over there. 
I know it's yeah. hard to keep straight, but anyway. Yeah. But, then, but, but oh, so also, even on so, its own terms, this would be useless, right? Even on its own terms, that base would be do nothing to achieve the stated goal, essentially. I mean, I guess I don't know. I, no, I mean, it makes sense, though, that I guess if if there is no other road to Damascus other oh, okay. than so Highway 51 okay. or whatever it is there, and the Americans can blockade that road from that base, then that's something. But here's the trick, okay? A long time ago, like, I don't know, 100 years ago, these men invented air travel. And so... In Iran, they have these things called airliners that you can fill full of missiles and rockets and guns and fly straight to Hezbollah's house without stopping in Syria and at any point in between. And we're not at war with Iran and shooting down all transport planes from Iran to Syria. And so land bridge or not, you know, we continue arming them, doing whatever we want. Or they can continue arming Hezbollah and doing whatever they want. The Americans can't really do anything about that without starting a war to stop them there. So, you know, a lot of it's because Israel is saying, you can't leave now with Iran empowered, but they don't really have an answer about what are we going to do other than... You still there? Oh, okay. Yeah, it cut out for a second. But yeah, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so the Israelis, I mean, that's part of that. But let me work in here real here is Mark Perry talked to some military guys, and he has a piece in the American Conservative where he says when, when Trump was in Iraq on Christmas, that, you know, the war, the, the JSOC and whatever, special SOCOM war in Syria is being run out of a base in Iraq, I guess near Mosul, somewhere there in western Iraq, northwestern Iraq. And so that was where Trump was, and he met with these generals, and he said to them, according to Mark Perry, hey, how many guys, how many ISIS are left in eastern Syria? And the general said, oh, just a couple of dozen down in the Euphrates Valley. And Trump said, well, how long is it going to take you to finish killing them? And the general said, a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, boss, no problem. And Trump said, that's it, then I want everyone out of Syria. And the general said, yes, sir. And then that was it. And there was a quote in the Wall Street Journal, too, where they said, we don't take orders from Bolton. So whatever you think you heard when he went to, to Israel, where he was sounded like he was adding conditions or whatever, he wasn't adding conditions. They have their orders from the president. They don't think for a moment that they have any choice. It, it doesn't even occur to them that they have a choice to buck on that. Generals on the ground in Syria, you heard the man. He looked you right in the eye and he said what he said. That's it. And there's just no question about that. America is an evil empire, but it's not a banana republic. They do what the president says, simple as that. And he said, that's it, I want you out. I want you to kill those guys, and then I want you to go. And so, now you might have heard some stories where they said, well, now the numbers are increasing. But legit, that is literally the guys who are brought in to close down the base and get the stuff out. They still need the same force protection in there, essentially. And they have to bring in the other guys to pack up everything. They were just building a really big base. I was trying to get an interview with the guy in the beginning of, De of um, December. There was a piece in Politico all about the huge new base they were building in eastern Syria. And it looks like the military plans to stay for the long haul and all of this. So now they've got to tear all that back down again. So mm -hmm. that when you hear that, yeah, they sent a few thousand more troops, that's... Tactical. That's not a change in strategy. Okay. But it does well, go to and, show, doesn't it, that Trump could end the war in Somalia. 
The nightmare, by the way, the horrible butchery, savage murder and rape and killing and absolute horror show going on in Somalia for the last 13 years at the hands of the USA, really the last 18, has just, nobody cares about it or reports about it, but it, it's as bad as anything they've done virtually, essentially it's the same as what they've done in Afghanistan or what they've done in Yemen or Iraq. Absolutely unforgivable sin in that. And they could do the same. He could do the same thing in Afghanistan tomorrow. The same thing in Libya. He could pull all of SOCOM out of Africa and just, you know, end the Air Force and Navy participation in Yemen. And and by tomorrow evening, he could be done ending the war on terrorism. You know. Well, and it is really going to be interesting if if he can successfully pull out of Syria. And I hope you're right about that. Um, just. It, what, how it'll go to show just how spineless Barack Obama was. That you would have had, you know, much more political support from his base to be able to do that sort of thing. And Trump's doing it. I mean, his base kind of likes it, but he faces a lot more flack than Obama would have for the right. same type of position. And he's apparently going through it. Now, I did have one question. Uh, on, by on, the way, I'm not saying well, I'm predicting that he's going to do those things. I'm just saying this goes oh, no, to I show know. just right. Just like in that Mark Perry story. When the president says to the general, do this, that's it. Now, when he asks him a question, eh, okay. But when he says, do this, hey. And so as long as he keeps the bubble top up and stays out of Dallas, should be fine. Yeah, that's what I think. Definitely. I don't um, think he will, but I think he could. That's all I'm saying. You don't mean stay out of Dallas. Um, but uh, so ISIS being defeated, do you think – I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that, because obviously in any other place where the U.S. has led a – I mean, even when it's been an on-the-ground like anti-terror campaign, it's never the case that they get everybody, because there's always going to be a guerrilla force, because it's sort of a – you know, it creates sure. its own resistance. So do you think they're so – you, but you don't think it's likely that they're going to be able to use that as an excuse to stay forever, because, oh, look, we killed another terrorist, but also got all of his family members, and now we create more terrorists, so look. Well – now, here's the thing about that, okay? This is a great question. But the deal is this. The Islamic State, which is really just al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II, they came across the border into Syria in 2011, and essentially they were brought back to life um, after the Sunni tribes had marginalized them in 2007 and 8. Barack Obama resuscitated them and gave them the defibrillator shock to the chest and brought them back to life. And so they grew up into this huge thing in Syria. And then in 2013, they split and they seized like the western, I mean, pardon me, the eastern half of Syria. And then a year later, they rolled right in back, I should say, into western Iraq and seized all of that. At that point, they declared a caliphate. Their leader, Baghdadi, decided to call himself the Caliph Ibrahim, at, like uh, predicted in some scripture and invoked the divine right to rule, and had literally seized a state the size of Great Britain with a population to match, and including, you know, a conscripted army and taxation and all the things that came with that, the caliphate, the Islamic State. So that took a three-year war to destroy. That was Iraq War III, 2014 through, um, uh, through 17. And so that meant that America was again on the side of the Shiites in Iraq, the Iraqi army and the, the Iranian militias and uh, 
you know, Hezbollah-backed forces and uh, whatever other Shiite militias there. They're not all Iranian puppets or whatever, but the different Shiite militias in Iraq. And they fought Iraq War III together with mostly special operations and American air power backing them up to kick the Islamic State back out of western Iraq. And they right. finished that in October 2017. Then they went to Raqqa, which was sort of the twin capital city with Mosul in Iraq. And Raqqa's in eastern Syria. And then they drove them out of there. And so, um, in that well, I guess sense, question in is, other words, I'm yeah. sorry I'm going on with the narrative. But the point being that the Islamic State was built up. It wasn't just a group. It became a real state. Now it has been completely obliterated. So yes, there are guerrillas left over, but they're nothing compared to what just was, essentially. Now on the Syrian side of the border, as soon as America gets out of the way, they're completely doomed. Because they have no real friendly forces there. The Syrian Arab army will come and reconsolidate monopoly power on that territory and they will either surrender or be shot essentially their their time is up they're caught between the syrian kurds the iraqi shiite forces on the shiites on the iraqi side of the line and the syrian arab army in a way and i mean this de facto because i asked coburn about this and coburn said this is completely not deliberate at all but it's just the way it's worked out the americans have been de facto protecting isis because the Syrian army would have finished consolidating that land in eastern Syria already, but the Americans are standing in the way there. Um, and so, but I guess to, to get back more specifically to the to my question, which is like, does insurgent math not apply in this case? Because ISIS at this point isn't really insurgents, and I don't know. I, it I guess, doesn't apply because the Syrian Arab army is from there. And okay. insurgent math applies to America in the situation we're in in Afghanistan, at least, and maybe anywhere we try to fight in the Middle East. But the Syrian Arab army, you know, when they're done consolidating that power, whatever insurgency is left is likely to be, and we're talking about in the East there, is likely to be, you know, very much like police activity. It's also barren desert out there, too. Um, other than in right. the city of Raqqa. So I think there's not too much for ISIS to gangsterize. Once America's out of the way, I think the Syrian Arab army is going to finish gangsterizing all that land and recreate their monopoly. I think they're going to be pretty much doomed there. But on the other hand, though, on the eastern side of that line, in western Iraq, I think the Islamic State is going to be, again, it's just al-Qaeda in Iraq. And now they are much more powerful than they were even after the defeat of the Islamic State as a state. They're you know, much greater in number, I think, than they were in 2011 when America left and when Obama started backing the jihad in Syria. Uh, that benefited them so greatly. And, you know, I, in fact, if you look at the Libertarian Institute blog, I have one uh, uh, called Iraq War Three and a Half, and it's just two little links so it's not going so well. One of them is I, one I had missed. A, a Reddit friend posted one um, uh, from December, and then uh, that I had missed. And then there's a brand new one, and both of them about you know the aftermath of Iraq War Three and the continuing insurgency in Iraqi Sunni stand. And you know I've I've said this you know really all along. Um, 
before the Islamic State and during it, and now I'll say it after the Islamic State, that uh, this is going to be unresolved forever. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're basically in stateless no man's land out there in western Iraq, and at least there's enough Sunni discontent at Shiite chauvinism out of Baghdad that, and especially with backed by Saudi money and that kind of thing, they are sure to wage insurgency there essentially from now on. They're not going to be able to create their own independent state again, because the last time they did it was the Caliph Ibrahim was the leader. So they're not going to be allowed to have their own state, but they're never going to be treated fairly by the new government in Baghdad. And they're never going to accept their new inferior station in life. And it's a problematic problem. It is impossible to undo 2003 through 8. It's just it is what it is. And, um, and so you think it'll just kind of be a low-level sort of civil war situation I mean, for insurgency for a while? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think okay. it could get really horrible again. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, um, and it, I think insurgent math kind of applies here, too, because the Iraqi Shiite militias, you should read these articles I posted on that blog there. The Iraqi Shiite militias, they are quite deliberately, you know, mimicking and mirroring the uh, behavior of ISIS in revenge. So they're taking ISIS wow. prisoners and throwing them off of cliffs and buildings, cutting their heads off in the middle of the street, murdering their moms. They got these refugee camps where anyone who was accused of being ISIS, any Sunni fighter who was ISIS or was accused of being ISIS, they're all in prison or already taken out and shot. And so then you have these huge refugee camps full of Sunni women and rape babies because all of the Shiite militia fighters and, and army men come in and rape them every night. And this is just going on and on and on and on and on. And it's it's a nightmare, dude. It's a nightmare over there. And it's going to stay like that. George W. Bush's stand there in western Iraq. You know, the, the permanent genocide kind of thing. And now, by the way, I should say that I talked to Elijah Magnier about a year ago. And he was like, nah, I think a lot of that's overblown and people are getting along and the Sunnis have some rep representation in the parliament. And, you know, the new guy um, is uh, Amiri is better than the last guy, a body and whatever this kind of thing. It's now um, uh, Ahmadi is the guy now from the Supreme Islamic Council, the first non-Dawa party guy, the Supreme Islamic Council guy. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know, man. I, I I want to get those guys on the show. I'm trying to get those guys on the show to talk about those articles about Iraq War three and a half. But I forgot what your original question. Oh yeah, about about well, we, the um, we got insurgent. Men. Yeah, I think yeah. I think in Syria, I think that the Saud government should probably be able to finish winning that war. Now the question of Al Qaeda in the Idlib province, I don't know what's going to happen there because you stop yeah. thousands of fighters, and you notice like there's your real Islamic State is in the Idlib province, but those are America's CIA backed Al Qaeda terrorists. Zawahiri and therefore Langley's guys. If that's, I'm not exactly sure how that works. Something along those lines. I skip a few in there, but yeah, they're friend of a friend. Um, yeah. And uh, and so, you know, I think I, I guess I fear that there's a war of annihilation coming soon there, where the Shiite government. I mean, you got to understand that the the Syrian Arab Army they don't have the ability to do a bunch of pinprick surgical strikes and this and that kind of thing they're a pretty blunt and broadsword if they're going to take that land there's going to be a lot of blood spilled and you're going to see the Russians you know launching a new massive air campaign and so but right now there's this ceasefire 
where the Turks are supposed to be weeding out the moderate fighters from the incorrigible ones, the ones who will surrender, essentially, and give up the fight, um, or at least come back to Turkey or make themselves useful against the Kurds or something like that. Versus, and we can definitely trust Turkey to do that. Right, yeah, they're exactly. Good at, they're good at deciding moderates. Right. Yeah, yeah, a year ago they used these al-Qaeda guys, the moderates and the jihadists, to attack Afrin. So you can see the, you know, the Turks game on that. But then as far as like the, the last of Jolani's guys and the last of the leaders of the al-Qaeda groups there, you know, that's a whole other war. That, and America's not in it. I mean, that's between, you know, Erdogan, Assad, and Putin, I guess of what they're going to do about that. Um, but yeah, as far as Western Iraq, I think Iraq War three and a half is going to last for a long time. I, I'm already thinking ahead to, at what point is it going to become Iraq War four? Some other major turning point is going to have to come for it to be four. It's going to be three and a half for a while, like it was Iraq War one and a half all through the Bill Clinton years. You know, just slow strangulation and bombing campaign. This is going to be like that. This slow counterinsurgency in Fallujah, Ramadi, Mosul from now on, you know. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a sad place. Um, well, let's pivot from that to another uh, more torn region, which is Afghanistan, but another one where the U.S. is hopefully uh, trying to leave. So... I guess on the Afghanistan thing, my first question is, you know, what what deal right now seems like uh, the Taliban is going to be offering, and how does it differ from what they've been offering all along, I guess? There or does it differ? Is it pretty much the same thing? The deal they're offering is the same one they've offered all along, which is once you withdraw from the country, we'll stop shooting at you. That's it. They refuse to talk to the Afghan, so-called Afghan government of national unity there in um in Kabul, which they regard as a totally, completely illegitimate puppet, that they refuse to speak to it on any, you know, equal terms whatsoever. And their only demand is that we completely leave. And But they promise, as they have promised for at least a decade and maybe more, that they will never let international terrorist groups use Afghanistan as a base of operations to attack any Western targets ever again, or any other targets for that matter, ever again. And so... And I think they have a really good reason to to abide by that um, and to not put up with that kind of crap after what they've been through. Um, and they've been offering that all along, and I think in a convincing way. Now, the Americans... Do you think... Well, do you think they... And so there's no condition in there about like them not trying to re-seize power in, the, in Kabul or anything like no, that? No, and you it's know strictly, what? I'll tell you, man. Um, you know... I think it's just crazy. I, for the life of me, Eric, I honestly, I, I don't understand it. Maybe I'm just not reading the right stuff or what. But I'm not hearing anyone say, make a deal to keep them out of Kabul, but to let them have, quite graciously, like all of the South and East under like a real, like a full autonomy, not secession and not a new nation state but full autonomy within the state of Afghanistan. And we'll all still be Afghans and we'll all still be brothers, but we won't be trying to boss you guys around anymore. And also, you won't be burdened with the problem of trying to control us outside of your own home turf areas. And so, and you know, it is, it's divided essentially between the alliance of the Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Hazaras against the 
Pashtuns is, uh, and the Pashtuns have essentially no real political representation other than the Taliban. So it seems like they should just say, look, we're going to have Hazara, Tajika, whatever stand up here in the north and let you guys have your area and then let's not have a fight over Kabul. And after all, why rule Kabul? Because ruling Kabul doesn't translate into control over the rest of the country anyway. We're talking about Afghanistan. So, in other words, you know, it seems like they should at least be trying to tell the Taliban, hey, man, you know what would be really cool and smart would be if you guys would just leave well enough alone. Quit while you're ahead. You guys have got it made. And how about we just draw the line with a pencil, not a magic marker. We just draw the line pretty much right where everybody stands right now. And then we'll go, and you guys promise not to sack Cobble. So instead, what are they doing? And maybe that's a fool's errand too, I don't know. But what are they doing instead? They're saying, yeah, we're going to have to um, you know, figure out a process for integrating uh, the Taliban as a political party. But, you know, they're not a political party. They're an army. You know, they're an insurgent army, but they are an armed force. They're going to what? They're going to put down all of their guns, join the parliament and just have their sons join the security forces along with the guys who've been shooting at them all this time. And everybody's just going to make friends and integrate that way through democracy and through, you know, joint ownership over the military or something like that. And who's going to pay for all of this? And I just, yeah, man, I don't, I'm not seeing that. I think what's going to happen is it's going to be really ugly. I think what's going to happen is America's going to go and then the Taliban are going to march into Kabul or sneak in there and do like a Trojan horse type coup where they just seize control of the city one day. And then probably, you know, another hundred thousand people die in fighting after that. Hmm. Um, well, and I guess from know, I hate to say yeah, that, but no, I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's any responsible parties to make the compromises necessary to avoid that outcome. You know, yeah. the Americans no, have I mean, built up. Out. Yeah, the Americans have built up this army and government to be so much more powerful than they really are without our support. That there's just a completely unsustainable bubble in their power, yeah. essentially. So. Yeah, and it's and just you laying out all the different things that have to happen and go right. I mean, it's just, it's laughable even as you say it. It's hard to say it with in you know. And look, the Taliban voice. are bastards too, man. I mean, they're butchers. They're not the kind of people who are going to come in there and be reasonable. They probably wouldn't have agreed to my proposal either. But at least that would have showed that, like, hey, we don't want to rule you anymore, and wouldn't it be nice if you don't want to rule us anymore either? Kind of deal. At least try to have an arrangement along those lines, but. You know, they're perfectly happy to set off a car bomb and kill 100 civilians if they can. So, Well, you know, it's it's funny, too, and I don't even know how much of this is demonization and how much of it's, you know, totally accurate. But, like, you know, if anybody's going to demonize the Taliban they're, or, you know, criticize, like, you know, it's going to they're going to go with, like, the honor killing thing and that sort of thing. But then you're going to believe that that same sort of culture is going to like, oh, yeah, but you know what? They're not going to hold a grudge. You know, 18 years of war. they no, they'll just get over it. It'll be fine. Like, yeah, like, how do you, how do you combine those two narratives and think, yeah, that's, yeah, that that sounds like something that's going to play out well. And you know, the thing so, is too, is oh. it's hard because no one can articulate, no one in media can say that yes, it's true, it is going to be bad. But that's no argument for further intervention. That's an argument against intervention. Right? It's like Hitler's not an argument for intervention. What about Hitler? What about Hitler? What about Hitler? The argument is 
that that's what American intervention in World War I created. Not just Hitler, but Stalin too. The Soviet Union and communism, and for that matter, Mao Zedong and all the rest of that, as well as Adolf Hitler and all the Holocaust and the 60 million killed and the worst thing that ever happened, the Second World War. That was because of American intervention, you know? People always want to truncate the antecedents, as uh, Robert Higgs says. Um, but And so what's going to happen here is it's going to be really ugly. And then the interventionists are going to say, yeah, see, we told you so that it would be really ugly if we left. But then you need for people who have the wherewithal to say back to them, no, we told you this was what was going to happen if you tried to build this army there and try to build this new government there and that you would be unable to sustain and that would be unable to sustain itself. And that if this is the consequence of us leaving now, it's no different than if we stayed another 20 years. I mean, these guys had their chance to do their full counterinsurgency campaign, and it didn't work. You know, right. if they wanted to do... They the got a chance full, to do it multiple times. That's right. Yeah, and that. If they want to do the full-fledged counterinsurgency campaign, then according to their rules, and never mind the culture and the land, the area, you know, the topography and the geography of the area they're trying to conquer, or any of that, but just by the, by the book, supposedly, they would need 500,000 men. To pacify all of Afghanistan. Well, that's larger than the U.S. Army's entire active force, including all the cooks and the guys that do the laundry. So, um, that's it. You can't do it. Right? Just like if China started butchering people in Outer Mongolia, we would just be appalled. And we wouldn't be able to do a damn thing about it. Because it's too far away from here, and the Chinese got them H-bombs, and so just guess what? There's limits on your power, and one of the things you can't do is remake Afghanistan the way that you want. And that is now a scientifically proven fact. Right. Well, and so let's get to the kind of like the American motivation here, because really at this point, I think Trump's, you know, Trump's always kind of had a thing about Afghanistan that he's thought it was a dumb war, which good for him. Um, but he still also has the thing that all American politicians have, which is he needs to find a way to save face. So in Syria, the way he could save face is like, well, we defeated ISIS, we're going. And he can, you know, more or less plausibly say that. In Afghanistan, what's face saving going to look like? Do they have anything they're going to be able to cling to? Well, I mean, I said in my book a year and a half ago, uh, that what he needs to do is he needs to say this is all big dummy Bush and big wimp loser Obama's fault. I just got here, man. I just work here. It's in my fault. And you know what? He wasn't a senator. He wasn't the wife of the president who put the Taliban in power, right, Uh, or voted for the Iraq war or any of these things. He wasn't even a governor, right? He was just a TV show host um, and a, a real estate sign maker. He didn't really own buildings anymore. He just put signs on them. But anyway, um. So he bore no responsibility for any of this. And I think that even if he can't articulate that very well, that like, look, this is all big dummy and big wimp's fault, not mine, that even without that, everyone knows that. You know, everybody knows that he's the new guy. Everybody knows that essentially 
that Afghanistan, Iraq, and the rest of this, this is George Bush's war. And he actually does do a pretty good job of reminding us that. He actually does say repeatedly, he doesn't blame Obama as much. He could really dunk on both of them in one statement more often, I think. Um, but he does blame Bush. He does say we should have never been over there at all. He says this is the worst mistake a U.S. president has ever made, was going into the Middle East, which is not exactly right considering Woodrow Wilson and World War One, like we just talked about, but still. You know what? I'll take it. And it's a great way. Not only is it almost completely true, it's, it's certainly Bush is right up there, and his decisions are right up there with the worst things that the American presidents have ever done. And um, and it's a great way to explain why it's not his fault. You know, he could even, I mean, he's Donald Trump, right? So if he wanted to, he could say, listen, if I'd been president all along since 2001, well, I would have won that war properly, right? But right. Bush and Obama screwed it up so bad that there's nothing I can do for you now, son. In fact, I even let Madison McMaster have a year and a half at it, and they accomplished nothing, okay? So... He can blame then the two previous presidents, their administrations, and then even the Hawks in his own government, who we all know essentially twisted his arm and forced, it, forced him to do the escalation back in 2017. He can even say, I gave them their shot, and they couldn't do it either. And he can say the same thing for the rest of the Middle East. You know? And in your opinion, does he seem to be? Because I'd heard a little bit of that, but I hadn't heard quite as much detail in terms of his narrative about this as that. It, so he actually does seem to be taking that path a little bit on. Well, I, mean, I, I know guess on, the problem is, is the problem is he hasn't said that specifically about Afghanistan. I guess he said that about the whole Middle East. He's saying essentially the whole dang terror war didn't have to happen at all. But he he has not said we could have killed him at Tora Bora and left or any real specific kind of thing. But he's just saying, geez, I wish the whole 21st century had never really worked out this way, which is really channeling the American people as well, too. They don't have a real specific narrative, but they know that it ain't supposed to be like this, man. 20 years to hunt down a stateless group of bandits. What the hell is going on over there? You know, this isn't right. And um, so I think he kind of has that intuitive thing. And he he's. He's pretty intuitive about what other people think, and so he kind of he's pretty good at feeding people a little bit of what they want to hear, even when he doesn't mean it. Again, you know, most of the best of this stuff only goes to show that he knows better. Just like with Barack Obama, I mean, it's not that George Bush is less guilty because he was just 100% horrible the whole time and believed it with no doubt, um, but on the other hand. Without saying Bush is better, I think you could still say it's worse in a way when it's a proven fact that you know better, Barack Obama or Donald Trump, that you don't believe in this stuff. You don't believe in it. I mean, Obama, you could say at least he believes in this whole global American leadership hegemony garbage, right? But he didn't believe in these specific wars, but he still did them anyway, right? He said about Libya, it was 5149. To start a war? Um, and Donald quote. Trump. Donald Trump says, we're getting the hell out of Syria. He, You know what? In his message about getting out of Syria, there in the, the little YouTube video that he did in the um, Oval Office drive or the White House driveway there, he was invoking all the wounded at Walter Reed 
and all the sacrifices of the families and all this, he said it in a really serious way that, like, this is not worth the sacrifice anymore. I don't believe in it. I'm not going to ask you guys to die and get wounded and all of this in a war I don't believe in. Which is, you know what? That's pretty good for a guy with as, as shallow as Donald Trump is. But this is like the one thing. And then when Lindsey Graham said, when we can't leave Syria, Donald Trump said, I guess Lindsey Graham doesn't care about the soldiers, but I do. Whoa, dude. So in other yeah, words, that was if, if you support the troops, you have to oppose the war. Right? You have to bring them home and keep them safe where they only die every once in a while in a training accident at Fort Bliss. But otherwise, they're fine. Right? That's, that's how to support the troops. So keep them on the dole, getting paid to do nothing. Not killing innocent people. Not, and risking their own lives to do so. Not anymore. And, and man, we, I mean, it's funny because if just, if he was only like six points smarter or however on the scale, if he just had a little bit more depth, a little bit more curiosity, a little bit more, you know, interest in, in getting his story right and telling it in a compelling way, he could wrap this whole thing up. In fact, you look at how many wars we got. He could end a war every quarter until he's reelected in 2020. Here's yeah. what we're going to do, yeah. America. Every three months, we're going to end a war. And then and then you're going to reelect me, and I'm going to be Trump the Great. You're going to carry me and my reelection and my inauguration on your shoulders. I'm going to end all the wars, and then in the whole time, and it, because he's a Republican and because he's Donald Trump, in the most over-the-top way, all he has to do is just sing his worship of the enlisted man the whole time. It's yeah. all because he loves them. It's all because he loves the military. It's all because he loves, you know, he honors their sacrifices and all those things. So he doesn't come off in a Jane Fonda, Barack Obama way that he doesn't like them. He comes off like he likes them so much, that's why he wants to quit. That's how you do it. Attack the right from the right. He's in the perfect position to do it. You know, the yeah. perfect position to do it. Even with all this Russia bullshit about what a patriot he's not because he's a secret Russian agent. I don't think anybody believes that shit. Not his, none of his constituents believe it anyway. You know? And, yeah. and, and, I, and I, I doubt that the, the rank and file at the FBI and the CIA believe it either. You know, and they all voted right. for him, not her. Yeah. I don't know if well, they will no, again. It, it's but. great to see that, that uh, he is trying out some of those narratives, with the, especially the attack on Lindsey Graham. When he yeah. said that, that was just—I mean, that's what—that's what libertarians would want, or I mean, any anti-war person of like, yeah, supports troops, bring them home. That is the narrative that you never hear, and just—I right. mean, hopefully he he sees how well that plays and goes from there. And you got to admit, you know what? We should stop and appreciate the miracle that you know it's true. He ain't Ron Paul. However, we are still just two presidents away from George Bush, right? And and even Barack Obama was elected as a direct reaction against the Bush policies. And then here we have, even in the right-wing reaction against Obama, who was black and had a crazy name and was rumored to be a foreigner and all of these crazy things that got the right-wing so amped up about him, even the next president... By Trump. Uh, yeah, yeah I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, that's true. He was the... Yeah, Trump was the ringleader of it all. But then, even when Trump comes in and is the next right-wing president, he keeps the anti-war position of the last guy or the anti-Bush's problems position he doesn't want to give that up he ran on that and that was how he defeated jeb was by going your last name is bush in fact he really said that right because jeb's slogan was jeb and trump goes ah oh, why are you so embarrassed about your last name there jeb and then that was it it was like dude he was done he's complete toast after that um kind of a thing you know it could have been worse even 
But um, so that I mean, that's pretty miraculous that you have a Republican president of the United States still in the 2000 teens saying that what Bush did, that that essentially the whole 20, like I say, the whole 21st century didn't have to happen. It didn't have to be this way at all. It didn't have to be this way at all. Not, well, we all thought he had weapons of mass destruction and a bunch of crap, but it didn't have to be this way at all. Um, And now I'm not saying he's enacting it all, but I'm just saying even hearing him say that and coming from the right and to his audience, that's more than I could have really hoped for even right there. You know what I mean? Because I never really thought Ron Paul could be the president. I just love him and wish he was, but I ain't stupid. You know what I mean? I never... What Ron right. did was he gave two great speaking tours on behalf of Liberty. But I wasn't really disappointed he didn't win because I ain't a fool in the first place kind of thing, you know. But yeah. So to actually have a Republican president up there who actually, like, danced in, danced on on Bush's brother's grave on the way into office and, and routinely denounces the wars and the whole idea of America as the guarantor of the world law and all of this crap is pretty big. Yeah. No, you gotta, you gotta take the silver linings where you find them. Yeah, for sure. So, um, let's go from that to another war that, well, it's not winding down, but it had a positive development in it recently, which is, uh, the war in Yemen or one of the wars in Yemen, I guess I should say. So recently, um, they passed a resolution in the House to suspend some U.S. support for the Saudi-led war against the Houthis there. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there were some weasel words in it, but it doesn't really matter because it's essentially a symbolic thing anyway because Trump can veto it. So they did have some weasel words about, well, we can still share intelligence. Well, that was the whole problem in the first place, you know, or a third of it, right, um, was right. the whole the whole operation, the Americans holding their hands all along in and thing. So, um, but it's sort of beside the point. Actually, the real point, the sort of like we were talking about with Syria on the ground before, it's a tactical switch, not a strategic one, because overall, the War Powers Act resolution was passed in the House for the first time ever. And last November, the Senate did it, but then uh, Paul Ryan and the Republicans killed it. But now under the new Nancy Pelosi uh, Democrat House, they've passed it, and the Senate is about to pass it again in the exact same language, and then Trump has already sworn to veto it. But it should at least be, you know, the basis of a fight. I don't think they have a prayer in overriding his veto, but, you know, if they have any courage at all, I mean, they're, they're, they're staking the claim enough to pass these resolutions it seems like some of those congressmen and senators have got to figure out a way to build on this controversy and to keep the fight up so that it's something that Trump sees the advantage in ending this thing. I mean, part of it is, and I don't know what all he's being told by the CIA and the Pentagon about what they want to do there and who all side they're on and just give us another six months, boss, or whatever the hell their problem is over there. But I think essentially the Saudis cannot achieve their goals. So what the hell are we doing? We're just going to help them. We're just going to keep doing this for another four years then when, you know, they simply can not drive the Houthis out of the capital city, period. OK, they can't. So what's their goal now then? What's their next, you know, is it even something that's within the realm of possibility? Now, all, as I'm even saying this to you, I'm asking myself, are they even having this conversation in the White House? 
Are they even having the conversation of what exactly are we doing there and what are we trying to accomplish? When will we know it's enough? Or anything? No. I mean, man. You, to ask the question is to answer it. You know that's not happening. It's a bad time. Um, it's the worst one of all of our wars, really, because it's the poorest population and the most dependent on foreign trade and foreign aid for food, and they're just starving to death. It's a genocide. It is a literal, deliberate, medieval starvation campaign against the civilian population there by, they say, the Saudi-led coalition. But Saudi ain't the world empire. The USA is. They're the satellite. Our Navy, our Air Force coordinate the whole damn thing. Our spies, our contractors, our everything, do everything. It's an American So. So Trump's going to veto it. Would it have even been a binding resolution anyway? Or well, you know, he yeah, just doesn't so, even want the language to pass at all? Yeah, it's funny. Like, what's he supposed to do? Sign a thing telling him what he can't do anymore? So, But the deal is this, and I'm too stupid to have learned it the first time, but uh, and I can't even remember who it was on my show that explained this, but there are two different kinds of resolutions, the concurrent resolution and the other kind. And one of them is subject to veto, and the other one would not be. And I forget which is which and what the name of the other kind even is because I'm a fool. But um, that was essentially the problem. There was a way that they could have done this where it wouldn't be up to him to veto it. It would be the law that he may not spend any money on this or he or his power to wage it would be rescinded. Now, the money thing is a separate question. His power to wage it would be rescinded and he would be in violation of the law to keep doing it. But that's not the kind of resolution they passed. They passed the other kind. So it is more symbolic. But... It's supposed to represent, you know, it is the Congress of the United States of America. So they're saying to the Saudis, too, that, you know, we like money, but we're willing to tell you very explicitly here that we don't want this anymore. And it's time for you to wind this thing down. And, you know, whether they can do that in a way that will be, you know, impressive to the um, uh, to the. Um, uh, Saudis, you know, that Crown make Prince the difference. I'm not really sure, you know. Right. Yeah, that they're they're sort of hoping to pressure the Saudis into. You should probably make peace sooner or later because and pressure Trump too. Yeah, and pressure yeah. Trump too. That like, okay, look, it's not really the law, but we do really mean it. I mean, come on, you yeah. know. And you gotta. We don't vote on anything around here. Yeah, especially not to undermine a war. They must really be upset about something, you know. They just yeah. finished condemning him for wanting to get out of Syria and Afghanistan last week. So Yeah. <laughs> so I guess uh pivot from that uh to one of the representatives who really pushed for it, um, is no longer with us. Walter Jones, do you wanna say a couple words about him? Yeah, so he was a conventional Republican, inherited his house seat from his dad, uh was from North Carolina. Uh, you know, always a decent guy, but a pretty conventional thinking guy. And he was the one that, when the French wouldn't support Iraq War II on the U.N. Security Council, there was a diner in his town. He's the congressman from where Camp Lejeune is. And um, and uh, he, uh, uh, there was a diner fries. there where they, where they yeah. you know, renamed French fries Freedom Fries. And so then he had a resolution to, um, to uh, rename them Freedom Fries in the Capitol Hill cafeteria which made national news and people thought was kind of the caricature of a ridiculous right-wing kind of reaction in the build-up to this war. It was part of the circus of the build-up to Iraq War II. But then, 
So his thing was, is he's a real serious religious guy. I think he was raised um, Baptist, but converted to Catholicism. But he took his religion real seriously. And he would write letters home to uh, the family members of the killed from, I guess, starting in his district, but maybe just everywhere. And as he told the story, he got to the point where he, you know, I guess he just couldn't take it anymore. Like, what is wrong here? And then also... He listened to James Bamford's book, A Pretext for War, the audio book, um, and, which is a really great book about how the neocons lied us into war. And it came out in 2004. And so he you know, had this long drive. Ron Paul told the story on his uh, Liberty Report recently. Uh, he would have this five, six-hour drive home from D.C. To, <clears throat> to his home district and listen to these audio books. And when he heard A Pretext for War... Uh, that was what really changed his mind. And so he started writing these letters home to all of the family members of all of the dead. So not just the mom or the dad, but the mom, the dad, the sister, everyone. He wrote like 12,000 of these things for like 7,000 dead. He wrote, or, or, I forgot the exact number. It's far more. It's like 20,000 or something. Far more than the total number of dead. So I'm thinking, I, my understanding is that was the the individual family members the brothers and the sisters and everyone of the dead, he was writing him letters. And he was, essentially, he was begging Jesus to save his soul, to make up for... And, and he's the only example of this, by the way. You know, Ron Paul and John Duncan and some of the other few Republicans, they got this right in the first place. There's no other example, Eric, of an American congressman who voted for Iraq War II, who then, you know perverbally, you know, shot himself in the face over it and couldn't, you know, forgive himself for what he'd done and was, you know, distraught over it in this way. And it just tore him apart, you could tell. And then he became a great anti-war champion after that and pushed resolutions to let Bush know that he does not have authority to attack Iran, for example, would push resolutions to get out of all the different wars. And he had made Yemen a real project. As you know, the media wouldn't pay any attention to this. I mean, it literally was like libertarian and very left-wing activist, alternative media, and congressmen and senators, and nobody in between. I, I, I mean, I should say, you know, the Quakers and the, some of the human rights organizations and stuff. That's not exactly leftist media. Um, they're, you know, they did real work. Kate Gould and the, the, the Friends Committee on National Legislation and those guys are real heroes. Um, but, you know, there's no public discussion, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. Other than the real activists and the leftists and the libertarians and the whoever. And then a few congressmen and Walter Jones was one of those who had really pushed. And I interviewed him on my show. I think about this but quite a few different times about different things. And um, and you could tell, you know, he's a heartfelt guy. And actually, I had a little exchange with him because I said, you know, it always sounds funny the way you talk about the dead soldiers. It sounds almost like you want to say, and of course, all the other people, all the Iraqis, all the Afghans, all the other victims of our war, but it sounds like you deliberately like choke it back and hold your tongue and you don't ever say that. In, in a way where it's like almost conspicuous in, in your silence about it. Why wouldn't you say that? You know, and he told me, he said, well, um, you know, I can't get anybody to care about the dead soldiers. So how the hell am I supposed to get them to care about a bunch of dead Iraqis? They don't care about the dead Iraqis, you know. So he really had me at that. 
But then later on, I was thinking about it more, why that wasn't a satisfying answer to me. I mean, because first of all, who cares what they think? What's right is right, and your job at this point certainly is to lead them about what's right, to explain to them why an Iraqi fighting aged male's life is exactly as important as theirs, and no less and and no more, you know? Um, But what really bothered me about it, I guess, and I figured this out later, and I wrote him a little email about it and sent it to him, um, that he acknowledged kindly and whatever, was that... The reason that that's a uh, um, uh, uh, unworthy answer, not uh, not proper answer to that, is because the excuse for the sacrifice of the lives of all those soldiers is that they're doing it to help these people, and so they volunteer to sign up to fight for freedom. And our government says that fighting for freedom in Iraq is fighting for freedom here, and they believe it, and that's why they do it. And so then the Americans back home go, you know, their job is to honor that sacrifice. So, at this point, it's important to point out that not only is Johnny dead, but the people that he supposedly was fighting and sacrificed his life to fight for their freedom, they're the ones who killed him, because they hated him, because he invaded their country and destroyed it. He wasn't really bringing them freedom at all. That was just a lie some lawyer scumbag politician told him when he sent him over there, but it wasn't true. You know, and that's the reality that needs to be brought home. That's why it's doubly sad that Johnny's dead, right? It's because it wasn't a worthy sacrifice. It wasn't a noble sacrifice. It was for something that was corrupt all along. And especially when Jones was always saying all along, Dick Cheney lied. George Bush lied. They weren't wrong. Those neocons, they weren't wrong. They are the worst devils in the world for the way they did what they did and cynically exploiting and lying to the congressman, too. And, and and guilting them into believing it and all of that stuff. So why not also point out the horrible, you know, violence to the others? And and I think I I actually did convince him with that point. But then I don't know if he ever had a chance to, like, you know, yeah. uh, change the way he talked about it. Now he's dead too late now. But he may very well have have taken that to heart. I don't really know. But um, yeah, there's well, one no, thing I, mean, I always I thought was kind of a flaw too, in his but... message. Sure. But, I mean, I do get his point, too, because if you you know how it is, you're always talking about attacking the right from the right. I mean, in his position, if he talked, hey, you know, Iraqis are people, too, that sounds sounds you're pretty much a commie if you're going to say that. But you can say, look, we destroyed their country. Okay, they're not better off now than they were under Saddam Hussein. They're dead. You know what we did over there was horrific. Okay, tortured them, killed them, blew them apart. It wasn't for their own good. It wasn't. You know, and that's the way to talk about it. You don't have to get all like bleeding heart emotional about it. You just say the reality is that they said that it was worth it that these kids died to kill just the bad guys to help the good guys. But it turned out that that wasn't really the reality of the war at all. It was not true. You know, that's the point. But anyway, he's dead. I don't yeah. mean to talk bad about the guy. I mean, I, that's just one actual small flaw in his argument. I just go off on my tangents as I do. But, you know, it it was a heartfelt thing, and he did care about the dead civilians over there. He just mistakenly had the wrong idea about how to use it as a talking point or whatever or how not to. But um, he did care about that, you know, I think. And he, he certainly, you know, felt bad that he had betrayed the trust of the people that he represented in Congress. And so, but, you well, know. And like you said, it is just, it's a... It's crazy that he's the only example that would go on the floor and, you know, have a mea culpa that wasn't an obviously politically motivated 
oh, I guess the country's turned against this. I guess I was opposed to that. I regret that vote. You're right. Yes, I do. And in fact, most of them were never even asked, right? Most of them never said anything about it because no one ever even asked them. And they weren't sorry because who cares? That was it. Yeah. Just another day. Yep. Well, so we're getting up here around an hour and a half in this uh, episode. I did want to cover one more issue um, before we, we wrapped up because it's been in the news, um, and I think we could touch on it pretty quickly, which is the Senate Intelligence Committee um, released a statement. And, of course, the Mueller, there's, well, I feel like there's always reports that the Mueller investigation is wrapping up. But Senate Intelligence Committee released a statement, and they've, Democrats and Republicans apparently agreed on saying they found no evidence of collusion uh, between the Trump campaign and Russia. So are you surprised by that result, or... <laughs> That it no. came out in such a stark way. Yes, or? I'm surprised that the Democrats admitted that and signed on to that, if that was your question. But, uh, no, I'm not surprised that they couldn't find any evidence because the whole thing is clearly a hoax, and it always was a hoax. And, you know, it's funny because it's smart to be like uh, Greenwaldian and say, well, I'm awaiting further evidence, you know, and maybe it's a little risky to say, you know what? This is complete bullshit. I'm not going along with this at all. I just, I can see right through it. It just isn't true. Um, it's just Iraq War II all over again. Look, everybody, a hundred little data points, and not one of them can withstand scrutiny. And a hundred times zero is still zero, pal. We've been over this. I've seen it over and over again in my life. And in this case, it's just Trump is Saddam Hussein, and, and Putin is Saddam Hussein, or David Koresh, or whoever your figure is that they have to demonize. And then they just say all the things that they say, but that doesn't make them true. And then as we've seen on all their biggest claims, it's all completely fallen apart that this whole narrative and conspiracy theory where the Russians were communicating with the Trump you know team in so many ways guiding their whole thing and hacking the election and all these things none of it has proven true the most serious accusation is that they hacked and leaked the Hillary emails but that's not proven those are still simply untested claims in an indictment and um you know, possibly they're credible ones, but they're certainly not uh, proven beyond, you know, any reasonable doubt or anything close to that in any way. And then even then, I think it's far from proven that that's damaging. I think that, you know, America and the world owes the Russians a favor for leaking those emails or anyone <laughs> who ever leaked those emails. We had a right to see those emails and she had no right to keep them from us. That's why she put them on a private server at her house was so that they would not be available through FOIA so that she would have the opportunity to scrub them and bleach them and cover up her crimes. And so, um, but Scott, she said those were yoga emails. Oh, yeah, that's Those right. Those were about yoga. Thousands and thousands that's of healthy. emails. Yeah, tens of oh, 30,000 emails. And then she goes, well, you know, I would email Bill. Like, hey, Bill, I'm going to be late because I'm at yoga. And then, but here's a clip of Bill Clinton saying, I only use email twice in my whole life on somebody else's account. I don't know. And so he doesn't What's use a email. Yeah, exactly, dude. He has an assistant for stuff like that, dude. Um and so, um, but anyway, so listen, Jason Leopold, who recently got busted out over his skis on one of these stories, um, saying that um, Trump had told his lawyer to lie and they had him on a hardcore obstruction case. Well, that same Leopold, actually because he'd been burned on previous stories where he believed his lying sources um, or embellished them, as uh, you may interpret it, 
he became what they called the FOIA ninja. And all he would do was sue the government for documents and then report on the documents. So now you can't get mad at him because it says it right there, black and white. No, no two sources or three sources or single source involved. And so what did he do all through 2015 and 16? It said sue the State Department and publish Hillary Clinton's emails, as many as he could get his hands on. So then, assuming for the sake of argument the narrative is true, that Vladimir Putin and his government then helped to complete Jason Leopold's work by publishing more of Hillary Clinton's emails. Why is that anything other than just journalism? Although, hey, gotcha. But, you know, the journalistic ethic, and that's something Greenwald has written about all the time, that it doesn't matter where the document comes from. If you're a journalist and the document is legit and it says a thing, and even if you know that one campaign leaked it to hurt the other campaign, if it's legit and it's newsworthy, then tough luck. That's the way it goes. You publish it anyway. You know, look at – I like – I love the – Yeah, well, I was just going to – Here's an example of the Russians leaked the audio of the American – Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs plotting a coup on the phone with the ambassador to Ukraine. And clearly that was – we don't know for a certainty, I guess, 100 percent, but we know 99.9 percent that that was the Russians who intercepted that call and put it on YouTube. Well, good. And aren't we all glad that they did? And how does that count as – what, do they hack the Ukraine coup if they did that? And then they did the coup anyway. That's the brilliant part of that. They did the coup after they were already caught red-handed plotting the coup and published on YouTube for the whole world to hear. Then they did it anyway, like eight days later. And and denied <laughs> it was a coup. Yeah, and denied it. Yeah, exactly. And said, you're a Russian stooge for saying it was a coup. What are you talking about? Um but so, yeah, this whole, this whole thing about how, oh, yeah, you're right, overlords. I had no right to know what was in Hillary Clinton's emails, and I'm so mad at this, supposedly, this foreign government for giving them to me. I'm just, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not like a minor bird going to let someone else tell me what to think about stuff like that. It's crazy. And then all of the rest of it. And that is just the unprovable who did the hack and who leaked it. Nobody knows yet. Maybe never will, right? Um, That's all just supposition. All the rest of it, we already know amounts to nothing. All of it. Michael Flynn on the phone, Jeff Sessions meetings with Kislyak, and the, you know, the, the, the Trump Tower meeting, and the promise of more emails by someone who did not have them, and the FBI setting up, um, Page and Papadopoulos, and, and the, the dossier that says that uh, Trump had the girls do the golden shower and that Carter Page was going to get a, get this, a $19 billion commission on an oil deal. Because, yeah, that's how the oil business is done. And anyway, yeah. um, just complete. It's all not true. They ha- and, oh, and they hacked all the state uh, uh, party uh, headquarters and voter roll. They hacked all the voter rolls. They hacked the um, uh, electri- electricity system in Vermont, and yeah. they sold a bunch of guns to the Taliban. And none of it is true. None of it. They basically own Twitter, from what I understand. They're just oh, on oh, Twitter. and they bought Everything some Facebook ads. Yeah, <laughs> they bought they bought Facebook ads that nobody saw and nobody cared about and couldn't possibly influence anyone to do or think anything. And, the, yeah, the whole thing is completely a hoax. And when and when the Mueller report comes out, you're going to see a bunch of crimes 
described against a bunch of nobodies and a bunch of nothings and a bunch of non-prosecutables and nothing that has anything to do with here is Trump's agreement with Russia that if you help me become president, I will help implement pro-Russian policies. There's just nothing there. There never was. The whole thing was a hoax. And, you know, somebody, just like with Iraq War II, somebody really needs to go back. Maybe Norman Solomon or somebody else. But somebody needs to do, like, a Sick job of making montages of news clips and news headlines and articles of all of the claims of these insane people this whole time where you have the center, the establishment moderates on the right and the left on a full scale, hardcore, bad LSD trip, truther campaign of conspiracy quackery where the conclusion is first, where everything else is confirmation bias, where no anecdote holds up to the slightest bit of scrutiny, but then you just move on to the next one. You don't even say, okay, you got me there, but you just go on to the next one. What about this? What about this? What about this? Like a complete lunatic. Like a complete nut. Like the kind of people that they do nothing but point their fingers and laugh at all day, and that's who they are. And you got a bunch of, you know, weirdo rednecks out in the woods in their trailer who are like, who are the insane lunatic truther nuts who have taken over CNN and believe every stupid thing that they think as though that makes it true, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, and, and what's interesting about, I like you, I was amazed that, it came out in such a clean, you know, because most of the time when they've had, you know, statements from these committees, it's been like, oh, the Republicans lead the committee, the Democrats dissented, but the Republicans have the majority, so this is their statement, the Democrats disagree. Right. And in this one, they tried to push back on that a little bit, but I guess, I don't know if the Democrats are just tired of going, you know, you know what doing this was, or what. Uh, what happened was, um, I think there was a Republican congressman who said <laughs> that, who was on the committee. Who said that? Yeah, we're done, and and we know that's not, you know, that there there is no evidence, and the Democrats admit it too. But so all they had was, and I think he said it on like a Republican, like an AM radio show. Um. So then Ken Delanian, who is the CIA's man at NBC, who that's a whole other subject. This guy. Yeah. Um. But Delanian, he's the guy who went and cornered the Democrats on the committee. And ask them, if, you know, would they admit to that? Would they, you know, second that? And they admitted to him that, yeah, it was right. So then the story came out, I think, in the media before any official statement that it was like, yeah, they they really had to admit that they had nothing. 200 interviews, you know, sworn statements and, and uh, questioning sessions and whatever. And that, you know, most of those are cops and spies and including in secret session. Yeah. They got the cops and the spies. They got the NSA, the CIA, the FBI in the skiff, right in the secret room where probably even just in the gang of four, or the gang of eight or the whatever, where it's the, the top few, the leaders of the committee, right? Only the only the Democrat vice chair is allowed um, to to sit in there, that kind of thing. And then. What do they say? Okay, so where's the collusion? What's the story? Give us the conspiracy. They don't have one. They don't have one. If they did, then they would be saying right now, well, let me tell you, there's one last big story that you don't know about, but when that Mueller report comes out, then you'll see, 
uh-uh, that's not what they're saying. Instead, they're kind of playing down the Mueller report that, like, well, you know, it might not quite please what you might thought was going to happen. And I'll tell you what, too. In the Bob Woodward book, and this is, as far as I know, and I don't just read the Washington Post every single day like I used to do, but... um. Uh, as far as I know, this is just never part of the public narrative, really, at all. And I don't know if it even picked up after the Bob Woodward book came out, Fear. But in that Bob Woodward book, Donald Trump's lawyer tells Bob Mueller's right-hand assistant. He goes, look, you know, if you guys will deal with us fairly, we'll deal with you fairly. So as long as you promise to me, man-to-man, handshake, that you guys are going to tell us what is going on, in the investigation, essentially, like overall, where we are, what you're looking at, what's the deal, then here, and in fact, I don't even think that was a condition. I think that was just the deal. Like he just said, here is everything. Donald Trump had told, in fact, I'm skipping the part. The lawyer had said to Trump, all right, look here, Mr. President, seriously, is there anything here that we need to be worried about? Which lawyer was this? Uh, I forgot the guy's name. I I don't want to say his name. I'll get it wrong. Okay. I think one it was Dowd. Was it Dowd? Do you know Dowd him? was one of the guys uh-huh. at one point. I think yeah. it was Dowd. And he okay. goes, listen, man, seriously, like, is there anything here that we need to know about that we need to deal with? And Trump said, no, God damn it. And he said, all right, then, so do you have a problem with me giving them everything? And Trump said, no, give them everything. From the first day, there was no negotiation, there was no threat, there was no foot dragging, there was no Bill Clinton BS. Trump told his lawyer, give them every scrap of paper from the campaign, everything we've got, carte blanche, let them know, I don't give a damn because I don't have nothing to hide because this isn't true. And, I mean, the whole thing should have closed down right there. Bob Mueller knew that this was a lie from the beginning. You know, but the deal is with these special counsels... Their their uh, scope is whatever they want. So if they come across, you know, a hundred little crimes committed by Manafort and his partner and whatever the hell, then they can prosecute that. So he can sit here and make, you know, tens of cases against whoever he wants that are in any way, you know, tangentially tied to this. Anything that he finds while he's investigating one thing that implicates anyone else, he can then pursue that and prosecute that. But again, it's just like the accusations against Saddam Hussein. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Yeah, but none of those say that he's going to give Osama a germ bomb. So that's the accusation. And then you cite 10 things, but those 10 things don't back that up. So what the hell? You know, same difference. But Scott, Rachel Maddow told me that they've indicted like 30 people. Yeah. They've indicted 30 people. They've even convicted some people of being guilty, Scott. Right, so and, it's all quantity and no quality. quality. That's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. It's just like when they go, look at this stack of paper. I remember this is a literal thing on TV. Look at this stack of paper. This is all of our investigation into the Oklahoma City bombing. Look at how tall that stack of paper is. And it's like, yeah, but over there is a stack like this high that has all the real stuff about the Aryan Republican Army bank robbery ring that they still wouldn't give the defense because they're liars. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah. They always do it's that, just, try to switch that up on you. Yeah, and it's just every, but yeah, and then they're either unrelated crimes or they're process crimes or they're just, yeah, all messing up. And it's, it'll be interesting, I, I, in, in, I think it was the Delanian story where the climb down approach that some of them are taking is like, well, you know, 
we were never really going to find a, you know, an email that said, you know, called Vlad, my buddy, and said we're going to do the election. So, like, that's yeah. the approach. Like, well, it doesn't mean there's really no collusion. It just meant we couldn't prove it like we said we were going to be able to. Yeah, well, on. what they're doing now is they're saying, <laughs> well, he's a Russian asset, either witting or unwitting. Which, of course, and then they all just repeat it, just like it's a damn spider hole. Like, they just, the hey, government gave me a new term to use, and so I'll just use it. Witting or unwitting, witting or unwitting. Well, what does that mean? Unwitting means you actually, in fact, have not made a corrupt deal with a foreign power to do a damn thing, is what unwitting means. What is unwitting? That you read Ramondo and so agreed with him and Putin about something? Is that it? Uh, anything that disagrees with the modern CIA line on Russia? Hey, you wrote an article about the color-coded revolutions that the CIA and the NED did against Russian interests in the 2000s. You're an unwitting agent of Russia for telling their side of the story and the thing that happened. I mean, this is completely stupid. It has completely stupid written all over about it. When you're recruited by a foreign agency, what happens is you're recruited by them. Maybe a lot of times it'll be like, hey, we can prove that you already did us a favor. <laughs> and so... You're going to get in trouble if you don't keep doing us favors. <laughs> and that's how they do it. But yeah. when that happens to you, you know that that happened to you. You don't, oh, I'm an unwitting agent of a foreign power. I kind of think we should get along with them. Clearly, yeah. they, there's, a, you know, I mean, honestly, it is. It's like um, astrology, right? Where you don't have mm -hmm. to actually make, you don't have to explain the causality. You just say, well, dude, look where Saturn is in the sky, duh. And then that's it. And then, but nobody asks the follow-up question. They're like, yeah, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, you're saying like that gravitational waves affect the iron in my blood and that, what? What? There's no follow-up question. Unwitting. Yeah. What does it mean to be an unwitting agent of Russia? It doesn't mean anything. Well, and I know I said this was going to be the last thing we talked about, but it's such a perfect segue. I I guess we got to talk about the the Maria Butina thing. Um, and I like it looks that like one. you just had had Bamford uh, on the show to talk about. It. I just read that article today, and that is just it's amazing. So for people that don't know, Maria Butina, of course, she was in the in the press as the Russian spy, the Russian Red Sparrow, is what they called her. That was trying to cozy up to the NRA to get influence in the Trump administration, and then also when you read the full story essentially cozied up to no one with any influence whatsoever and appears to be the perfect example of an unwitting agent. Yeah. So uh, you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Well, <laughs> yeah, she's the agent of nothing. Um, the whole thing was a hoax, and I didn't even realize until I read that story, Eric, that Robert Mueller passed this up. Robert Mueller did yeah. not persecute her. This is some bum at the Department of Justice decided to pick up a case that Mueller passed on because there was nothing at all there for him to work with. Um, but as you're saying, you know, I, I'm sorry, I forget. It was Anna Chapman. Uh, I almost forgot, but I remembered again. A couple of years ago, there was a Russian spy with red hair, and she was kind of pretty. And her name was Anna Chapman, and she was a Russian spy, dude. And when they busted her, as Bamford said on the show when I interviewed him, um, 
she had all this secret stuff at her house, all this high-tech equipment and whatever the hell. That's a spy. Well, guess what? Butina looks superficially like her. So again, with the confirmation bias, if this is the kind of thing that you're dying to believe in, no matter what, then you go, aha, sort of pretty, red-headed Russian spy lady, says the government, and... Yeah, sounds true. Sounds like it must be a thing, especially if you're a Democrat in this day and age. Um, And then they smeared the hell out of her, too, which satisfies everyone's um, little titillation that they said that she was a swallow. She was a spy who was sent and was willing to give sexual favors in exchange for information and all this and that, which was a downright lie. And, in fact... um, she had a monogamous boyfriend, apparently this guy, Paul Erickson, who is, I mean, apparently a pretty corrupt Republican Party operative, but so, that doesn't mean anything. Um, but that was her boyfriend. There's no, they never presented anything that said she was having sex with anyone else, much less that it had anything to do with espionage in the slightest bit at all. And then we find out in the James Banford article, that, and this came out in court, that the... Uh, prosecutors deliberately, you know, redacted and deleted a old text message, a very old text message, way out of context to make it sound like she was offering sex to someone, again, for something that had nothing to do with espionage whatsoever. It was like helping her change a tire on her car or something like that. And, and he was saying, oh, well, what, what can you ever do for me then? She said, I can't pay you. Oh, well, what can you do for me then? Well, how about sex? But then they go on to joke, and there's emojis, that the prosecutors deleted the emojis and deleted the things that gave it the context and the rest of the conversation that reveals that she's a good friend of their family and a good friend of his wife. And this was not her hitting on him or offering him anything. This was clearly simply friends joking around on a text message with no actual sexual import whatsoever. And then connection to espionage. Forget it. This had nothing, anything to do with that. That was all they had. And the judge, apparently, according to Bamford, like really yelled at the prosecutors and said, don't tell me this was a mistake that you misunderstood what that meant when you had to censor this thing beyond all recognition in order to make it say what you said it said, you bastards. And then, yeah. But look what they it did. Really, uh, Top headline, Washington Post, New York Times, Rachel Maddow show, Dallas Morning News, and everywhere else. You know, the Russians sent the seductress to come and usurp our virginal, honorable men who would never do such a thing except under the succubus of the devil, the thing, and the terrible demonized. And then they threw her in solitary confinement for months. Until she agreed to plead guilty to what? Espionage? No. Failing to register as a foreign agent. Yeah, right. I think conspiracy to fix. Oh, oh, I don't yeah. even think it was the actual thing. And then, yeah, so in other words, her and every other person that works in Washington, D.C., who are all either on the payroll of Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or the United Arab Emirates... Or I guess, do the English still run things in D.C. at all? I guess they might still have influence in on Park Avenue. But anyway, so in other words, this whole thing was a hoax. And then, so, but then into her story, she was just a right-wing gun nut. And she saw the NRA, and she wanted to create a Russian NRA and lobby for gun rights in Russia. And, you know, the way Bamford tells this story in there, 
you know, she's a pretty impressive lady. Gets up there. She's, you know, uh, in her early 20s. She gets up there and full of a room of Russian right-wing rednecks and says, here's what we're going to do, boys, and, and whips them right into shape and leads them in this organization to lobby and pressure and rally for gun rights for Russians. She said she was terrified that she would end up in prison, in Russian prison, on some trumped-up charge. She said she never dreamed that this could happen to her in the United States of America. Yeah, she had that quote in there that was, this is the human rights place. Yeah. This is, this is America in the midst of an anti-Russian witch hunt found a Russian witch. Yeah. And, and can't control themselves. They're like, they're, they're like little children. The Democrats, the, you know, their supporters, their TV stars, the cops, the Justice Department prosecutors. Did you ever see the movie Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson, where Patrick Stewart is the CIA MK Ultra psychiatrist who's torturing Mel Gibson? He's the crazy cab driver type. No, it's a great movie. But at the end of the movie, there's this other U.S. government agency, and it doesn't really have a name. But it's there to make sure that the CIA and the FBI and whoever else, that there's some kind of check and balance on them, too. And thank goodness for that, because otherwise the CIA would get to do whatever they want, right? But then the reality is that, no, there's not one of those. There is not that. There is no check and balance on these people. Once they kick this stuff into gear, there's no skull and bones committee that says, hey, man, knock that off with the witch hunt with the literal russian witch hunt thing you guys are making fools of yourselves if nothing else you're embarrassing us all if nothing else there's no break if you're a justice department prosecutor and you want to put an innocent girl in solitary confinement until she admits that she's guilty of something that she's not then you will do that and no one will stop you and if yeah. it can be spun as something proving that the Republican president is guilty of treason, then you'll have the entire, you know, or 90 percent of the left half of the American body politic will rally with your story, too. Yeah. It's, you know, I didn't realize how scandalous that story was until you, I mean, really encourage everybody to read it. Yeah. It's, and look, by the way, they yeah. do this to, to people all the time. Local, state and federal cops mercilessly persecute people. If it hadn't happened to you, then you're just lucky as hell so far. But, you know, the fact that and I'm the same as you, like in terms of demographics or whatever, that doesn't protect us. They kill people who are, you know, middle class white guys all the time. Just the same, and and then, but for people who are you know poorer and minorities, they have it that much worse. But America is yeah. a lawless, authoritarian police state, not against everyone all the time, but against enough people all the time. And it is essentially it's a state of terrorism too, because it means you know that you know that they can come for you next if they want if you know if they want to, and so you have to question how far you really are willing to stick your neck out. Um, they'll come yeah. up with any pretext and they'll get away with doing whatever the hell that they want. And this lady, you know, and you hear this all the time when moms call the cops to help them with their son and the cops come and kill their son. Or when some dad sends his son to the army to go fight for freedom and then he comes home all crazy and with all these problems and kills himself or whatever. That People are just shocked by the dissonance. On the, it's like yeah. a thunderclap coming back 
from the narrative where they've been living to the reality of the real world, you know, um, it's it's yeah. shocking to them to find out. You know, we see this all the time. Did you see the one where the, the actress from the TV show ER, uh, the cops in Pasadena just blew her away, shot her eight times, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, really? Because, wow. yeah, and her landlord called the cops to help her, or called probably an ambulance because she was having like a bit of an emotional breakdown or some kind of thing, apparently. The cops claim she aimed a BB gun at them or a toy gun at them, but I don't really believe that, do you? Maybe she did, but even then they could have retreated. They And even then they could have shot her once. They shot her eight times. And uh, did you see the one where the guy fell asleep in the drive-thru at the Taco Bell last night or two nights ago? It's a no. rapper in Oakland. So there's a rapper in Oakland. Why did he fall asleep in the drive-thru at Taco Bell? Is it because he's drunk or a heroin addict? No, it's because he's working 20-hour days putting out a rap album, man. Being a productive, entrepreneurial capitalist businessman in our society. And he went out to get some tacos at 2 in the morning and apparently fell asleep in line at the damn Taco Bell. So then the cops get there because what do they do? They call the cops on him. The cops come. They see he has a gun in his lap. But they also said his window had been broken out. So they could have just taken the plastic off of his window and just reached in and taken the gun. But they didn't. Instead, they went to pin him in with their cars and they bumped him and woke him up. And then according to them, his hands moved down toward the gun quickly. Well, where were his hands before? He was asleep sitting up in the driver's seat. So his hands were already in his lap. He reached down in his seat toward the gun. In other words, he woke up startled, and they just simply murdered him. Shot him 25 times. And according to his family and the lawyers who went and saw his body, I mean, they blew him apart. Ears missing and pieces of his chunks of his face missing and, and holes in his chest... They shot him 25 times. They lit him up like an Iraqi at a checkpoint, like they were Marines in Fallujah. God, that's a, I mean, and he's I don't just know some Oakland rapper like... at a Taco Bell. And they knew he wasn't there to kill cops. He wasn't there to rob Taco Bell. He was in the fucking drive through. That's, yeah, no, I had missed that one. That is. So, yeah, yeah but... I mean, hey, good old Bettina. She's a lucky girl, man. They could have just yeah. raped her and strangled her and thrown her off a bridge if they wanted to. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. And, yeah, the statistic I was about to quote, it uh, kind of pales in the comparison to the story you just told. But, you know, one of the things, because, yeah, they threw her in solitary confinement so they could get a plea deal because they're, you know, functionally torturing her to, you know, until she eventually just wants out whatever she has to say. Um, one of the guys at Cato, who's like head of their criminal justice department or whatever, um, one of the statistics he always cites is that 97% of criminal cases go through plea deals. And you right. don't even get a jury trial because they do this all the time right. so they can avoid having any of their work actually scrutinized. That's exactly right. And it is where what happens is if you go to trial and you lose, you're going to get 10 times the time we're going to give you for the plea deal. We're going to yeah. bury you in there. So you better go ahead and take the plea deal. And so you'd be a fool not to. And then they go, oh, look at me and my 98% conviction rate. You know? Yeah. And they don't care. You know what? I'll never forget, man, and especially because I've repeated it so many times that uh, I'll always remember it. Had a lady in my cab uh, back, say, oh, uh, 20 years ago. 
and she was a uh, assistant DA from Houston, Harris County, Texas. And she was there for some, you know, Texas pig convention thing, whatever. But so I picked her up from the airport, I guess, or whatever. I'm driving her around. But we're getting along great. We're talking about all these things. And, you know me, I'm an interested and interesting guy. So we're kind of having a little bit of a back and forth and this and that there. But I'm putting the screws to her a little bit about, you know, the way that they do business down there. And she admitted to me that they have a slogan at the Harris County District Attorney's Office that they all just repeat. This is just their cliche with a shrug. If they really didn't do it, they'll get out on appeal. And the thing is about that is they know that that's not true. Okay, so first of all, what that means is anyone the cops bring us, we prosecute to the nth degree. That's what that means. It means that it's not up to us to ask ourselves whether we really believe this person did this thing. It's up to us to put them through the grinder if we can. And if they can't figure out a way to stop us, we do this to them. And then they must know, of course they do know, that the rules are that when you're in the pen... All of the burden of proof is on you. And not just to prove that you're innocent, because innocence is not good enough. Actual innocence is not good enough. You have to prove that the judge made a mistake at your trial. You have to prove that the cops perjured themselves. You have to prove that a new scientific method has been invented that can now analyze evidence previously unable, uh, unavailable to be analyzed that now changes things in your story. You have to have a serious-ass reason for them to revisit your conviction. Just saying, uh, Your Honor, I think that... If I got a chance to go to the same trial again that I could get acquitted this time, that's not going to do it. The burden of proof is on you by, as they put it, two-thirds. You know, it's on you to show them why what they did to you was wrong. And not just that they came to the wrong conclusion, but that they came to the conclusion wrongly. Is that clear? You understand what I mean? Yeah. So... That is the worst thing. That's just the worst thing in the world. And all it is is it's an excuse to say anyone the cops bring in, they crucify. And they don't care whether it's true. You know, you hear stories of people who are wrongly convicted. And don't you ever wonder to yourself, like, man, can they not, like, arrange with their lawyer to have a meeting with the prosecutor? Even at the risk of, like, incriminating themselves. But to, to say to the prosecutor, look, before we go to trial, lady, I want to give you a chance to meet me and hear my side of the story real quick, because I'm not so sure I'm going to have a good chance at trial. But I'm, I think I might be able to convince you that the cops got the wrong guy here before it gets that far, right? But that you don't get to do that, and they don't want to hear it, and they don't care. They don't care. You know, their deal is, can they get a conviction? That's all. And then, and it's the perfect diffusion of responsibility, too. Hey, let the jury decide. Well, let the jury decide when you're the one telling them they have to agree with you or else a guilty man goes free. Yeah. Now, but, it, but now it's their fault if they believe you? Yeah, and it's such a perversion of the, you know, the way our system's designed. It's supposed, you know, in theory, right? Right. The way you learn it in school is yeah, that they're criminals. it's worse to have, well, that, but, like, it's worse to have one you know, innocent person locked up than to have, I don't know, a hundred, a thousand people, guilty people go free. Like that's, that's the premise of the system. That's why you have to be beyond a reasonable doubt and all these things. Yep. And it's just, and you know, it's yeah, all the drug war. It doesn't work like that. It's, you yep. know, just like the whole thing about the terror war, it didn't have to be this way. 
so Trump is right about that. In other words, everyone who said an anti-war thing between then and now was right all this time, and everyone who disagreed with them was wrong all this time. It's not just that the Afghan war is wrong and dumb and a fool's errand now. It always was stupid and wrong, and I told you so back in September of 2001. And a lot of other people did too. And all of this time, they were right. Same thing with the war on drugs. Every single worst thing that critics of the drug wars have said for 50 years for 45 years has been true and has all come to pass. And just look at like what you're talking about with the corruption of the court system, where there's so many just volume of poor people being shoveled through these criminal courts on bogus, trumped up family life, career, education, destroying drug charges for possession or for being a drug businessman engaging in completely consensual behavior with other grown adults who could do whatever the hell they want and it's none of your business and instead what do we have conservatives and liberals and a national government police force led by the DEA and then but plus essentially deputizing all of the state and local governments to fight this drug war locking up millions of people, causing such disruption and opportunity cost loss to this society, it is immeasurable and unimaginable. You know, you talk about why a guy charged with an armed robbery can't get a fair trial. It's because of all of the drug charges in the same court that same week. There's just no way to do it. Yeah. And so they come up with like what we're talking about, these schemes where they just charge you with so many different things that you just say, fine, give me two years instead of 25. And so you just shut up and take your plea, you know. Yeah. And if you get a trial, if you insist, it's not going to be like on TV where everybody like holds their horses for a minute and everybody gets to really have their say and everybody makes sure that all the best witnesses take place and the judge is paying attention the whole time. And and the jurors are like people worthy of casting in a TV drama. Like maybe not. You could go in there and and think you're gonna have something like a big Matlock, you know, this and that forward and back offense and defense type trial to come to find out that actually the whole thing just kind of wraps up like a big charade and and you're just railroaded over and done and you didn't even really get to have your say. You know, and, uh, you know, it just happens all the time. Innocent yeah. people get convicted all the time. And, yeah. you know, anyway. And, you know, this is one that always bothered me ever since I was a little kid. You'd hear about innocent people get convicted of killing a cop. And you think, well, wait a minute. Like, okay, they really, really hated this black guy and wanted to put a dead cop charge on him. Okay, like, I believe that. But they were willing to let an actual cop killer go free just to pin it on this black guy? Like, I remember seeing that, like, on, you know, whatever TV shows when I was a kid in the 80s, Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack or whatever episodes, of, you know, cop documentaries and whatever, where primetime live type true crime dramas where they find out at the end that it really wasn't him and whatever. Or and But you, there were enough when I was young. There were enough of these stories where... They really went to the nth degree to prosecute the wrong guy for killing a cop. And that always just really impressed me that yeah. that's when they're, you would think they're really trying. 
that's when you would think they really would care to make sure that the guy that did this is going to be the one to pay, and boy, is he going to pay. But instead, they're like, nah, whatever. They just do. It's all in a you know, government job. Well, they don't care. Whatever's close enough. We'll just nab this guy. He's got a few priors. He's easy enough, and then we won't have to work hard. And so... Case solved. That's it. And and so and that was, you know, in the good old days before they were all trained by the Israelis in occupation suppression techniques and all of this stuff, the way it is now where everything's so militarized, where every cop is a SWAT officer essentially. Um, you know, that was way back when. Everything's that much yeah. worse now. So anyway, yeah, for Butina, what they did to Butina, you're right, they did. They tortured her into pleading guilty to a crime she didn't commit. Simple as that. Just like what happened in some worse totalitarian police state. And yet, uh, yeah, that's how it is in America day in and day out for people in all 50 states. Yeah. You know, shout out to all the brothers in prison. It's, uh, yeah, well, as we tend to do, uh, we don't like to leave things on a positive note here. That's not that's our right. thing. So, uh, uh, I think that's a good place as any to leave it. We got a couple questions to pick up on for the next time. And, uh, yeah, you got any closing thoughts, Scott? Yeah. Oh, just, I should have said to that one guy that, that left a comment on the stress blog about okay. the one, the one thing about the U S protecting ISIS de facto, that was a specific comment that went about the whole revolution. And we did talk about that this time. We did talk about this time that that's just for right now in the East. And then, yeah, the broader questions. Uh, the broader questions about do good people participate in these revolutions? Yes, but we kind of talked about this in the context of Venezuela and Syria. That that becomes less meaningful when empires intervene, and that the real question is whose side is the CIA on, uh, whose side are the interventionists on, rather than what the people of the country want and. Always the intervention is to their detriment, and you can go down the list, and there are no exceptions. So, I think that, that more or less covers it, right, Eric? Yep. Yeah. Uh, actually, you cut out on me a little bit there, sorry. Well, yeah. What did you say? I, I may have cut out on me, too, but I don't think so. I think we're okay. Uh, sometimes with the video calls, it, uh, the audio gets yeah. a little wonky. Yeah, but. we're over two hours. I should shut up now. Yeah, we're in good shape. All right, cool. So uh, that's a Q&A show. Thanks very much for doing it for me. Yeah. I should, um, I should play some outro music. Here we go. I'll see you, bud. Quality stuff. Yeah. No, I think that went, I think uh, having the video, I think that helped. Yeah. Thank you.